What's good? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So we're back with another podcast, this time faster than ever. And we got a more intellectual guest today. Probably haven't had a guest like this in a while, forever. His name is Brother Daniel Hakikachu. He is the founder of the Muslim Skeptic and of Alaska Institute most recently. Brother Daniel, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thanks for having me, guys. No pleasure, guys. Awesome. Yeah, so could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the Muslim Skeptic and Alasna? Yeah, sure. MuslimSkeptic.com um, is a place where I have all of my writings, pretty much. Um, almost a thousand different articles on critiquing modernity and the different ideologies within modernity. And the idea is that I want to be skeptical, and I think Muslims should be skeptical of these ideologies um, because they're presented as truth, but they attack Islam in many different ways. Modernism, liberalism, secularism, feminism, scientism, materialism, all these ideologies attack Islam and portray Islam as less than the truth, as less than rational, as less than moral. And so this is something that as Muslims, we need to critique and we need to push back and we need to show that no, in fact, Islam, uh, as the religion of Allah that has come to us from Jibreel to the Prophet uh, uh, to us um, is the peak of rationality, is the peak of morality. And this is plain if we just uh, reflect and we think and, and we uh, ground ourselves in the Quran and Sunnah, if we ground ourselves in the Islamic tradition, it's something that we can see and experience. And we have to be skeptical of these ideologies that are attacking Islam. So that's MuslimSkeptic.com. It's taking that kind of lens uh, to, you know, current events and, you know, thoughts I have on any different issue um, that may come up. And then recently we've had some guest authors as well and some new authors that are writing for uh, Muslim skeptics. So the site is growing fast, alhamdulillah. And then I also started recently, uh, co-founded with my wife, uh, alesna.org, Alesna Institute. And it's basically a course platform where you subscribe and you get access to courses that I've created, my wife uh, has created, some things we co-teach um, in the future, inshallah, we're going to have even other instructors teach on the platform dedicated to these issues of deconstructing uh, modernism and so forth, all of these ideologies, and basically asking, uh, answering the question, why Islam is the truth? Um, why Islam is the truth? Are we not on the truth as Muslims? And that's what the word alasna uh, refers to as a statement of Omar, uh, a rhetorical question that he asked, alasna ala al-haq, are we not on the truth? And this was a statement that he made to encourage Muslims to go out uh, and pray in the haram uh, at a time where the mushrikeen, the Quraysh in Mecca were oppressing and subjugating the Muslims, and Muslims had to um, pray and practice uh, in private and outside of public view because of fear of oppression. And so Omar, when he became Muslim, he had this kind of confidence and conviction and saying that, look, we're on the truth, so we should go out and we should not be afraid. Uh, and so that kind of spirit, that kind of mentality, I think is something that we really need to also have uh, as Muslims. And alhamdulillah, we do have uh, most of the Muslim is of this mindset. And some Muslims, the minority, are not, and we need to help each other 
all to come together as an ummah on this mindset. Um, and so the Institute is dedicated to uh, teaching about these kinds of issues where Muslims, uh, some Muslims might be doubtful because of the influence of modernism and secularism, liberalism, feminism, and so forth. Um, we have classes on atheism. We have classes on liberalism. We have classes on evolution. Okay, how do Muslims understand evolution? How do Muslims understand science? And the point is that we're not apologetic. Uh, my belief, and it's something that I've experienced uh, growing up myself, where I came from a secular background, I didn't really have um, a religious upbringing, is that I considered these things to be superior to Islam. Uh, and I had doubts, like, okay, well, what about women's rights in Islam? What about this issue of religious freedom in, in Islam? All of these issues that people question, they consider controversial. Um, LGBT in Islam, homosexuality in Islam, all these things, I also had many doubts about them growing up. And through research, through uh, help of ulama scholars, uh, my own studies uh, with them, doing my own research at... Uh, in college and in graduate school on these philosophies came to the conclusion that, well, actually these philosophies are clouding our vision. They're distorting our understanding. They're confusing us and preventing us from seeing the truth of Islam, from, from seeing that Islam is so superior and is so beautiful uh, and so profound and so uh, amazing that if you can see it in that light, then you can understand why the Sahaba uh, were so compelled and so motivated to do all the amazing things that they were able to do um, and spread Islam and to bring justice and to bring um, that kind of light uh, in their da'wah and so forth. So our inability uh, among some Muslims is partly because of this cloud, this, this pale uh, coming from, or Paul coming from uh, these ideologies. So the whole point of the Institute is to get rid of that, get rid of that rust through yeah. courses and so forth. Right, so get rid of that rust and come back to the truth. So you mentioned, uh, and by the way, just for the listeners, uh, Brother Daniel, his, uh, he's, you studied in, at Harvard, right? That's where you yeah. right. Uh, did a, philosophy? No, no, he did a, um, uh, in undergraduate, he majored in physics and he minored in philosophy and then later on he did a master's in uh, philosophy. Yes. <laughs> hey. Okay, yeah, sweet. So yeah, just so people know that you, you you're well-versed in you know, critiquing and logic. And that's what you teach, right? At the Muslim Skeptic, right? Yeah, um, so a lot of my articles are dedicated to a kind of logical approach or rational approach, um, being able to critique arguments. And that's what I'm trying to teach at Alesna. And, and that's what the courses are dedicated to doing is that Muslim, other Muslims who are interested in this and who, who want to learn about this kind of approach will have the tools to do so. Um, and this, I get, I had got a lot of questions over the years of, you know, Daniel, <clears throat> we like what you're doing. Can you teach us to do the same thing or to have the same kind of approach? And I got so many requests through the years that, you know, I thought, well, let me just put something online and make it as easy as possible for people to get that, inshallah. Okay, yeah, inshallah. That, that, sounds, that sounds great. Uh, so you mentioned earlier the purpose was to uh, basically get rid of the rust, right? That is, that's bringing people away from the truth. But how are modern ideologies today like progressivism, liberalism, modernism, you know, evolution, feminism, uh, you know, atheism. How are they, like, how are they bringing us away from the faith? Like, isn't there some overlap? Well, some, isn't there some overlap over some of the ideologies? 
Yeah, there can be there can be some overlap um, with some of these ideologies, but the usul, uh, meaning like the deeper roots um, of these ideologies, are completely in contradiction with Islam. And one example of that is the whole basis of modernity or, or modernism as a way of thought is the idea that the the latest and the greatest, the best of human civilization is right now, right in this current moment, because human society, human civilization is constantly progressing step by step by step. And people today are more advanced in terms of their morality and their rationality now than they were five years ago more than they were 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And this is, this is the underlying um, mindset of modernism, that human civilization is constantly progressing and getting better and better and better. But this is completely contradictory to Islam because our understanding, our, what we know is that the peak of rationality, the peak of morality was the Prophet the Prophet was and the Sahaba and that they were the best generation uh, and then the generation after them and then after them and then there's a decline actually there's a decline in uh, morality and rationality too because rationality uh, w rationality is not a complicated concept all it means is recognizing the truth if you can recognize the truth then you're rational and if you can't recognize the truth, then you're irrational. And what is the greatest truth? The greatest truth is that Allah exists, Allah created us, that there is no other God other than Allah. This is, this is the, you know, the most fundamental truth. And so how can you be a rational person if you don't recognize the most fundamental truth? So rationality, our, our cognitive abilities, um, are fundamentally tied to a recognition of the truth. And Allah has given all human beings this capability to recognize the truth in the fitrah. In the fitrah, meaning, you know, the normative dis disposition that we all have um, that Allah has given us. And the Prophet has mentioned this in a, in a hadith where he says that everyone is born as a Muslim on the fitrah, but then it's, it's a, you know, the parents who make the child a Christian or a Jew or so forth. So um, I don't know if you want to talk about fitrah, but this idea of rationality um, that the Prophet and the Sahaba, they were the peak of rationality, the peak of morality. Um, this is something that is so critical uh, to being a Muslim, because if you don't accept that, then you, know, you can't really be a Muslim. You can't really be a Muslim unless you believe that the Prophet was uh, masum, that he was sinless. And that what he brought from Allah was perfection. The Sharia was perfection, moral perfection. There's not something that we're going to discover um, 500 years after the Prophet or a thousand years that somehow is going to be more moral uh, and more correct than what the Quran says, than what the Prophet has said. So this is fundamental to being a Muslim. Um, but modernity has the complete opposite view. And if, if Muslims start adopting this kind of progressive mentality, then that's, that's going to be the source of so many doubts. Because if we're, we kind of internalize this idea that, yeah, civilization is progressing, then we're going to look down on previous generations. We're going to look down on, uh, you know, it starts by looking down on previous scholars. That's where it starts, but it's a slippery slope.
you start looking down on previous scholars, you start saying things like, oh, you know, previous scholars, this was the patriarchy, these are all men, uh, you know, old men who are trying to tell me what, you know, Islam is. It's, that's where it starts, you know, that's the low-hanging fruit, is to criticize the ulama, especially the ulama of history. But that's self-defeating, like how did we get Islam? Like Islam didn't come to us on a flash drive that we can just plug in and know what, is, what the Prophet said, what the Quran said. No, Islam came, the Quran and Sunnah came through the route, the tariq of these ulama. And so if you undermine them, you're really undermining all of Islam. You're undermining all of Islam if you say that all of these scholars were somehow fundamentally mistaken or they're somehow fund fundamentally biased so forth like this is a illogical self-defeating argument and 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 progressives there are progressive muslims like they're progressive because of this attitude that these scholars were all mistaken and they were they were sexist they're misogynist they're making all of these uh errors in interpreting the quran and sunnah well how do you even have the quran and sunnah in front of you as, as a progressive Muslim, how are you able to open the Muslim? Like, where did this come from? Those same scholars that you're undermining, that you're criticizing, that you're insulting, that you're laughing at, they're the ones who transmitted this. They're the ones who every single ayn or well that you're reading in the Muslim is coming from them. So, so this is, creates a very fundamental clash between, uh, this, between Islam and, and correct Islamic spirituality morality mentality and uh, modernism right okay so i wanted to uh just real quick i want to play the devil's advocate so you said how can we trust these people how can we even re uh, read the quran and rely on it when these same people that the same people that brought it could have been mistaken or biased could they not have uh, recorded the information correctly but incorrectly interpreted it could that have not have been the case so what do you mean record the information Right, so we know like the, the hadith, right? They study the chain, they study the life of the person that narrated the hadith, for example, right? Uh, but isn't it open to interpretation? Like we don't know what it means. Like isn't so that, that's aren't part those of scholars? Part. Aren't those scholars like putting their patriarchal def, uh, lenses uh, when they read the verses? So the thing is that you have to understand what Islamic knowledge is. This is, a, this is a big mistake that Muslims, as influenced by modernity, make uh, when, when modernist Muslims think that Islamic knowledge is just like information. Like you can just take it and save it on a flash drive or you can like write it in a book and then, oh, the, the information has been recorded, therefore it's preserved. That's not our, con that's not our conception of knowledge. That's not our conception of ilm. When it... What ilm means is that's part of it. Like that is one component of it. But a very big, arguably a bigger component is adab, is behavior, is khuluq, right? The behavior of the Prophet the behavior and the manners. And that's all something that you can't get by reading. You get it by, by your company, suhba. That's what made the sahaba the sahaba. They were companions. They were in his company. They were able to see his behavior and his manners. And that's why uh, they were who they are, is because of that influence. Most of the Sahaba were not scholars. Like, they weren't scholars in that sense of being literate and writing books and, like, studying fiqh or, like, uh, you know, studying tafsir of the Quran. There are certain 
the scholars of the Sahaba, like Ibn Abbas uh, or Ibn Omar, uh, but that's, uh, they were the minority. Most of the Sahaba were Sahaba by virtue of being in the company of the Prophet And they were still the best of generations, not because they're reading information from a book or transcribing information in a written form or, or anything like that. It's because they took on those manners. They took that akhlaq from the Prophet because of his influence on them uh, through that kind of companionship. And then that was transmitted to the next generation and the next generation. And, and this is recorded in the statements of the scholars when they say like uh, students of Imam Malik would say that most of what we took from Imam Malik was not, you know, hadith or this or that. What most of what we took from him was his manners, how he behaved, his adab. That's what is, that's what the real knowledge, that's what the gem, where the gems are. And it's not something that you can just write down and, and preserve in that way. It's something that is the influence of companionship. Okay. And so, it, yeah. So then it, you can't have like someone who says, oh, okay, I'm just going to read the Mus'haf and I'm going to read Hadith and then I'm going to interpret it, you know, and then I'm going to be able to understand uh, what Islam is. I'm going to understand like what the peak of character and morality is because I read some hadith, and I, even if you read all the hadith, you read all the hadith, because you have uh, Orientalists, right, non-Muslim Orientalists throughout history, I mean, the, in the uh, 19th century and the 20th century, who were masters of the Arabic language. They were non-Muslim. They mastered the Arabic language because they were trying to colonize the Muslims. So they were studying Islam, and they, were, they had access to all of these Torah, all of these texts, and they mastered Arabic, they memorized hadith, they had a very deep knowledge of these books, but they're not sitting with the sheikh. They're not like going and sitting, or they're not studying Islam in that kind of uh, manner where you're missing out on the suhbah aspect. So it can't be said that you have knowledge of Islam, that you've truly understood what Islam is. You just know texts, and, and that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, you can't just say that I have, I've read these texts and therefore I can interpret Islam as whatever it means. And this is something that, you know, is acknowledged within secular uh, studies as well, or, or the field of anthropology is like, you can't, the anthropologist in the secular university will say, if you want to understand a culture, if you want to understand a people, you have to go and actually be with them and, and sit with them and see them. You can't just read about them. Mm -hmm. To truly understand them, this is what they call field work. But okay. yeah, so that this this is why Islamic knowledge is not you know we can't have this kind of reductive understanding of what it is. And and if we have this fuller understanding, then that whole progressive argument of oh well we have a text so we can interpret it just as well as you know Omar Ibn Omar. Omar. Yeah. Okay. That's the logic that they have. Well, I have, or even some of them will say, I have more texts, like because of the compilation of a hadith in something like Sahih Bukhari or Sahih Muslim, the Sahih I have more hadith than Ibn Omar did. <laughs> I have more hadith than Ibn Abbas did. So I, I can actually, I know more than they do. <laughs> I have more, I have more knowledge. And you have some confused people making statements like that, that they have more knowledge because they have more of the hadith, they have more of the text than even some of the companions did because the companions, like they weren't necessarily experts in everything, 
or you know they weren't compiling everything and some of you know to the compilation of different uh, hadith texts or other um, ways of compiling hadith into um, these texts they would have to travel to different places to collect and compile hadith and so it's possible that uh, someone like today can have seen and read more hadith and be aware of more hadith just in terms of sheer number than even some of these sahaba and even some of the tabi'in and so forth. But that doesn't mean that they know more about Islam than Or they, know better. Obviously, or know better, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So like, uh, there's, there's a behavioral aspect to learning as well. Like, for example, um, I remember listening to a podcast of Muhammad Ghilan. Uh, he says that uh, you can't just listen to um, a lecture recording or you can't just read a book and then expect to become a um, like a scholar like that. But you actually have to go and sit down and you have to, um, what's the word, just kind of absorb uh, the energy and the vibe and the atmosphere that uh, that exists in that area. Does that make sense? Like yeah, so this is, this is uh, companionship. This is what Sohma is supposed to provide. So those who want to, and if you... Yeah, if you, if you take someone outside of that context, then their knowledge is going to be perverted um, because they're not getting the adab. They're not getting Islamic ethics. Your or, or your knowledge depends on your ethics in Islam, right? Um, like the concept of basira, for example, being able to have this kind of spiritual insight um, requires you to purify your heart. And if you are able to purify Tezkiyat, if you're able to purify your heart, then more of the truth will be revealed to you. But, right? This is okay. what we know because the heart will rust. The heart so, rusts and over time. So there's this ethical component to knowledge. Um, the heart can be veiled, right? So this is some the a, a corrupt environment can affect the heart in a negative way, such that a person is not able to see the truth is okay. not able to grasp the truth is not able to have confidence and yaqeen in the truth because of the corrupting influence of the environment but if you change the environment then there's less of that rusting that happens and a person is better able to do the kind of tezkiyah that will purify the heart and and then the light you know the light of hidayah um, is something that Allah can grant that person okay but then couldn't you Again, I, I don't play devil's advocate, but why not? Uh, just couldn't you, couldn't you like have the right intention, but do something that's wrong? Couldn't you have the right intention and think something that's wrong? Isn't that possible? What, so, you have to give me an example, because as far as... Someone, like, couldn't, for example, has... you know, there's some people that, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they'll have, you know, they'll do acts of worship that aren't found in the Sunnah, for example. Like, they'll go, they'll ask a dead religious person, someone in the grave, of course, can you ask Allah for this? Amar, of course, you just have to have the right facts as well. He's yeah, saying that right. not only do you have to have the right facts, but you have to have the right state of heart as well. You need both. Okay, that's essentially what you're saying. Or what Brother Dan was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. I'm not saying okay. that it's only your heart. No, of course not. No, but I was just giving an like, example of how... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you said like if you purify your heart, you'll be better able to... Uh, you'll basically find the truth. But couldn't you purify your heart and still have uh, like, you know, still be doing things that aren't necessarily you know in the sunnah like the, the example i gave of there's many religious people that might go to like you know saints and stuff or uh yeah, yeah. No, no no i was just trying to make a point about the connection 
between ethics and knowledge. That's all I was saying. I'm not ethics saying that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, or like or environment and knowledge. Environment and companion because okay. uh, the quote that from the other podcast that you're mentioning. Um, yeah. I was just trying to elaborate on that. But yeah, obviously I agree. You have to have as far as knowledge is concerned. That's why I said uh, necessary but not sufficient. Like knowing if you if you want to uh, <coughs> know Islam and and study Islam just for your personal requirements, or you want to go and advance further and actually become a student of knowledge and, the, and then a scholar and so forth, it requires you to have the right texts as well. You have to have the texts. I'm not trying to deny that texts are important to our author, important sitting with scholars to learn different mutun, uh, different manuals of knowledge. Yeah, that's all a part of what Islamic learning, the Islamic heritage tradition, intellectual tradition is about. But it, that's not all right that's not we can't reduce it just to uh the transmission of these texts it's also manners akhlaq, and so forth so, yeah, 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 wait, yeah, I, can, I can make wait, an wait, analogy let me, let me go let me go no 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 let me let me first okay i just want to make a quick okay, okay fine I, so there's this book okay i'm holding it right now it's called how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie okay this is just a book okay it has like it's a manual of how to make friends and how to how to get people to like you essentially okay for me i i work really well with changing my behavior off of books and just manuals, right? But I need uh, to be influenced. Like I need to have people around me in order to absorb um, that that energy and that kind of state of heart. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. That's human nature. Yeah. Okay. So my point was a little bit different. It was going back to what you were saying. Uh, you said anthropologists say you can't just learn something. Like if you're not in that context, you can't just like yeah learn that culture without being in it, right? So it stands to reason that the Sahaba, they, they were there when the verses were revealed. They were there with the Prophet. They were there with the, when, he's, when he said the rulings. So because they were there, they know the context better than us. So we, we have to rely on them. And, and the same thing goes with the Tabi'in, right? They, they studied with the chain. They studied directly with, with like children of the Sahaba and stuff. So like you said earlier, it kind of, uh, like you undermine, if you undermine that, you you end up kind of throwing the baby with the bathwater because if you, because like, because uh, like, I guess the earlier thing I was trying to say was like, like if you get the, we get the information, right? We get the Quran, the Hadith, right? From, from that mm -hmm. source. Uh, couldn't they have been uh, like, why is it that someone today can't, you know, read this stuff and say, well, they were wrong about this. Like what? Yeah. Give me an example. Like, let's, uh, let's say someone, say, go ahead, go let's ahead. Say, let's say, uh, what's an obvious example? Uh, let's say, well, the verse about hijab means covering your chest. Or, yeah, something like that. That's, a, that's pretty out there. Right, yeah, so how can you say that? Like, how can you say what the verse means? Because that's not what, that's not how the Quran is meant to be understood as just a abstract set of words uh in a text it can't it was revealed to you know it's why couldn't the revelation the quran be you know brought down by an angel and then brought to the earth and people just read it and that's it like that's not okay. how allah has sent the the revelation allah has sent the revelation to a man a human being like you, you and me okay. a human being who um, who practiced that, uh, the religion, who taught it, taught others how to 
bring themselves in conformity with Islam. And that's what the Prophet said, that none of you truly believes until his internal state is in conformity with what I have brought, meaning Islam. Like our internal states um, where we love what Allah loves and we hate what Allah hates. And this is what it means, you know, to have Iman according to this hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And if you don't have that, uh, you have a community, you have the Sahaba, you have this tradition, you have a lived tradition of people who are, who are given these verses and how did they behave? When the verses of hijab came down, there was a certain response from women and from men in that community by telling their daughters and their women, okay, the ver this is the verse, and then they reacted. And so they understood something from that, and then the Prophet approved of their actions, and he didn't correct their actions, or he did correct them and told them the right way to do it. And so then that's the meaning of what that verse is. The meaning of it is exemplified in their behavior and in, the, in what they actually did. And, and people and that and that kind of behavior and that kind of actions were you know transmitted right. through swap ah, okay. because you had you had daughter those children looked to what their parents did and what how they were implementing the ayat you know when Aisha anha says our mother Aisha says that the Prophet was the walking Quran you know all of his character is the Quran it, it's something that's embodied it's something that is practiced. And that means that people can see it. Even if you don't memorize, the, if you haven't memorized the verse, you can still see the behavior. You can still see the actions manifested uh, in, in everything that the Prophet ﷺ did, in everything that the Sahaba did, in everything that, and so forth and so on, down the generations. Right. And so someone to come out later and say, oh, I have a completely different understanding of what hijab means. Like, no, you, you're, that progressive mindset is completely at odds with what, Islamic knowledge even means like they're just making a, a category error they're, they think of Islamic knowledge as something that is abstract that you can contain within a page of a book or you can like download off from the cloud no this is not what knowledge is mm -hmm. okay yeah so, so what I'm, can I, well, if I'm am I correct in, in saying okay. that uh, if if this, if, the, if the, there were no Sahaba no companions no examples then then yeah, then you could just read the book. But there's a point to that. There's a point to the Prophet having an example and uh, Aisha, the mother of the believers, and the Sahaba being examples and role models. Because without that, the text can be interpreted in any way whatsoever. Yeah, not only them, but then the, pre the following generation and the following generation and, the, and so on and so forth. That's how we're able to have Islam today. Right. So yeah. from what I'm getting from you is that I'm understanding that uh, there is an experiential aspect to truth as well that we can't really separate from um, just like the secular version of truth. Okay. So there's experiential part and then there's a secular part of truth as well. So I'm talking about like just the text and the literature, right? But like, for example, uh, when we think of racism today, like in the, okay, uh, racism in the US, uh, when we hear that one word, we think of American racism, right? But then for example, when I lived in Saudi Arabia, um, there was quite noticeably like a, there was kind of like a, a class system, right? In which you would have um, like Filipinos, you'd have Pakistanis, um, like Indians uh, all at the bottom. Then you'd have like, for example, other Arabs, you'd have uh, like white people, and then you'd have like maybe Saudis and white people at the top. Okay, at least this is from my personal experience, what I've noticed, right? Um, I wasn't in, when I grew up in the US, I wasn't 
uh, I didn't have this racist conception in my mind, but as soon as I went there, uh, it's not as soon as I went there, but like growing up over there, I kind of experienced racism and I got into that mindset and, and into that mentality. Um, I didn't even see it as unethical at, at that point. I, I don't consider myself a bad person, but I- You're a racist? That, no, that, that, <laughs> that like the environment, it kind of- um, Influence, oh, okay. It, it influences you and your conception of reality. Okay, so like when, yeah. I, when I come here, I treat every human being the same in my, in my mind. I think that everyone is equal, right? But when I go over there, I subconsciously attribute different values to different people. And it's uh, like, uh, Islamically speaking, that's not right, correct? Mm -hmm. So that's the first example I wanted to bring up to show that there's an experiential aspect to truth. The second example is like, for example, uh, polygyny and slavery, okay? When we understand these concepts uh, in the West, uh, we attach a very negative stigma to them. Okay, when when polygyny is mentioned, we think of Mormons. Uh, we think of we think of Muslims as well. Like uh, like when polygyny is mentioned, it's always the worst case scenario. It's never something that hey, there's a normal couple, right? Or hey, like the Prophet did it, or the Sahaba, numerous Sahaba did it, right? Right. Uh, it's it's always the worst case scenario. I uh, it's never like the normal. Like the worst is always assumed. And right. I think what Fahd's trying to get at is. No, 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 environmental. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, also slavery, for example, right? Uh, when we think of slavery in the West, we think of a certain conception of slavery versus what slavery actually was in the time of the Prophet. Okay, whatever quote unquote slavery was. So, so there was slavery. There, yeah, there was slavery, right? But our conception of it at that time it was different. Right. I don't know if you want to get into a deep discussion on slavery, but. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, because yeah, uh, I don't, I don't like uh, buy this argument that we hear for nowadays that oh, well, there's different words for. I mean, there definitely was a difference in the kind of uh, slave practices yeah, in, in America. Yeah, in, in the history of America and, and chattel slavery and the way that they were treating African slaves. Of course, that's like very different uh, than the slavery that was found within uh, Muslim societies. And practiced by the Prophet and the companions, right. but yeah, so you can make that point, but it also shouldn't be overstated. Like, oh, you know, what the what was being practiced in that time was not slavery. I mean, if, if there's a problem with the word slavery, like if you want to say, okay, this is rik, the 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 thing is, it's still owning people, yeah. right? You're still yeah. owning someone, and so that's that's still that's universal. That's like it's not complicated like the definition of slavery uh, no. so this kind of cultural relativist idea that oh well there, we can't really define slavery therefore like we don't have to worry about this issue no, I, i'm saying that we this is an issue that needs to be addressed yeah. uh slavery within an islam and if you don't want to use the word slavery then the idea of ownership one person owning another person and this is something that uh can be addressed it just requires like having the right kind of approach right um, my, my point in mentioning that was not necessarily trying to um, say that Muslims didn't have slavery because we just define whatever, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand what you're trying to say. You yeah, that wasn't your point. I, I was just making a separate point. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, I, I do agree with uh, Brother Daniel, uh, what you said. Like, yeah, we can't, it's kind of, it's a weak move to like, not even weak, it's just incorrect to, you know, use apologetics and be like, oh, it wasn't really slavery. No, it was. 
No, but you have to, you have to live in that context to kind of understand what it was. And then like, when you, when you live in that context, you don't necessarily think it's unethical. Yeah. Like our ethics come from Islam. Right. Um, no, but we're also conditioned to um, see different kinds of structures and institutions mm-hmm. as categorized as slavery versus not. Um, so that's a big part of uh, the issue. And when I teach, so like I teach about this subject on slavery and Islam, how are we going to understand this is a source of big doubts and problems that Muslims have. The Quran is like uh, referring to slavery and seemingly endorsing it in parts and places. And there's no clear prohibition of slavery. And in fact, like you have the, uh, all of Islamic scholarship historically acknowledges like it's, you know, something just, normal adi right uh slavery people have slaves like this is just an institution that exists and no one felt um that there was this great evil this evil force and so how do we address that how now we see it as this the peak of evil this is the worst thing that anyone can ever do is own slaves well okay the process i had slaves does that mean he's evil yeah is he evil so this is a question that has to be addressed and it's how not would you answer that? It's not going to be good enough, for example, to say like, oh, yeah, we're fine with slaves as Muslims. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, slavery, we're cool with it. Because then <laughs> we'll just look like, we'll look like freaks. We'll look like barbarians. Uh, yes. That and, and so that's not a satisfactory response. But it's also not satisfactory to say like, oh, no, we denounce slavery. Islam came to, you know, abolish slavery and all of these apologetics. That's not right either, right? That's also the wrong approach. So what is the right approach is you have to like get into the details. And so it's, I mean, it's too much that we can't get into it unless we dedicate like a whole couple of podcasts to this issue. But like one thing that I like to start with is, okay, this idea of one person owning another person, uh, what does that actually mean? And when you look at um, history and you look at anthropology and the way that different cultures define ownership is that in the Western concept, we don't talk about uh, duties and obligations in terms of ownership. Like for example, if I say that, okay, if you mow my lawn, I'll pay you a hundred dollars. Like we have a contract. So you have a duty to mow my lawn and I have a duty, I have an obligation to pay you a certain amount of money. And so we talk about it in terms of rights, duties, obligations, those kinds of uh, that relationship that I have between me and you is described using those kinds of terms. In other cultures, those kinds of that those kinds of relationships are described as ownership. You know, I own you, uh, and so that kind of language, like it's the same relationship, it's the same kind of dynamic that's going on. I'm just using a different kind of language. I'm using it, there's just a different language convention to describe that. And so the same kind, and so the, the, the long and the short of it is that the same kinds of institutions that exist today within free society, free liberal society, they would be described like using, uh, like for example, this is a point that one anthropologist makes is, is if we brought, if we use the time machine to bring like Aristotle or to bring, you know, any historical figure to the present day, uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and we and those figures looked around at Americans in American society, they would say that most Americans are slaves. Most Americans are slaves. 
because they had recognized what's actually, you know, the kinds of relationships that people have. Most people have to go and work to survive. They have to go to jobs. They have to, they are coerced because they have to live, right? They have to pay rent. They have to uh, be able to buy groceries to feed themselves. Those kinds of responsibilities requires you to go work. You go work for a company, you go work at a job. You don't have any choice in the matter. It's not voluntary. You can quit a certain job, but you eventually have to go find another job to be able to survive. So that kind of uh, requirement, that kind of necessity that you have to survive would be considered a master-slave relationship according to you know, the people of the past who would come to this present-day society. Right. So this is, I mean, this is just a snippet of, you know, the kind of argument, but you can elaborate on this and, yeah. and understand like the deeper legal, linguistic, cultural, philosophical, legal dynamics that go into addressing this one issue of slavery in Islam. Right. The, just for me to save face, uh, the only reason why I brought up the concepts of uh, racism and me experiencing it and like me kind of subliminally participating in it. Uh, as well as talking about polygyny and uh, us, our understanding of it versus going back to the Prophet's time, as well as uh, uh, polygyny and slavery, uh, our understanding of it and going back to the Prophet's time, uh, is that you don't necessarily, you don't understand the concept uh, until you experience that concept yourself. For example, you know the color red. Um, you can read up as much as you want about the color itself, but you won't actually know red until you actually see it with your own eyes. Uh, Amar, what was the other example? Like if you pray, you can only like understand prayer by praying. You can't just understand it by reading about it. Precisely. So th that's what we mean by truth, having an experiential aspect to it. You have to experience it in order to like fully conceptualize it. See, like I'm trying to sure. drive back to the point that there is an experiential aspect to truth as well. I'm trying to drive back to the point that um, just because you read it in Islamic text does not necessarily mean you internalize that text. Right? You, have to, you have to be, um, you have to be in the presence of other people. You have to, um, you have to subconsciously absorb that information, not necessarily just logic your way through it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty I hear your argument uh, explaining slavery. That's that's very interesting. I've never heard anyone quite put it this way. So I think it's good. Like, it's I think it's a better way of addressing it than just apologizing away first and also the opposite end of just yeah, it's it's cool. Uh, yeah, the apologetics are, are pretty sad. Like, yeah, no, in general, I found them. I when I was growing up, I found them very unsatisfying. Like, yeah, in general, like, oh. like the apology. Yeah, it's. Like what, what they do is they, they kind of downplay the aspects of Islam that we consider inconvenient today rather than celebrating them. Or not even inconvenient, it's just politically incorrect. Like even other people I've talked to, uh, when you tell them the truth, uh, Brother Daniel, like I showed some of like your articles, right? To, like I knew, I knew some brothers that came to America to study and they started having doubts and stuff because their parents didn't really teach them. And mm -hmm. when I told them, like I explained things, I showed them some of your stuff, they, just, they said, yo, why do, why do people just... Uh, why do Muslims just apologize it away? You know, why don't they just just say it? Because honestly, if you go open the books you read, you're gonna see the truth. And and when you don't say it, the it shocks them more when they see the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah, they think that you. I've talked to people about this, like uh, because they criticize me or they say that 
you know, you shouldn't address these issues. It's better if we just give like the diplomatic, politically correct response. And, you know, that's people won't know better. And then they can go on living their lives, half thinking that, you know, they have the truth and they can be confident and happy about Islam, even though we've given them kind of a cotton candy version. No, that's disgusting. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, but this is what they're doing. This is what they're doing, right? This yeah. Is, they're, they're taking this approach and they're mass distributing it, right? They're mass distributing it. And then the thing is that now the internet exists. So people can, if you go and search Islam and slavery on Google, look at the results you're going to get. The top 10 results are not going to have this cotton candy version that you've yeah. heard like, on, the, you know, on YouTube from your favorite. On you YouTube know, or the like, local mosque. Like answering Islam and wiki Islam and like all yeah. these anti-Islamic polemic websites. Yeah, so someone who is really uh, interested in this question and wants to understand their faith. And, I, you know, I went through that and you guys have gone through that. I'm sure you know a lot of other Muslims who go through that kind of wanting to know, like, okay, well, what is actually right? Because I've heard from parents or I heard from this, this from the local imam, I know the truth of the matter. Right. And then you just go on the internet and it's all there for you. So I, I feel like there's a lack of adequate responses to some of these new critiques, these new kinds of attacks. And if we look at what our predecessors did um, when it came to addressing Greek philosophy, when it came to addressing Neoplatonism and all of these kinds of ideologies, they were able to crush it. Like they were able to really de delve deep, mastered those, mastered those ideologies, mastered Greek philosophy, mastered Greek logic, and just completely uh, deconstructed it to show that Islam is uh, superior and Islam is the truth. Um, so, you know, we have the responsibility now to do the same thing and follow in their footsteps. Yeah, and like crush, that the, crush their yeah. ideology instead yeah. of just adopting it. Isn't yeah, instead of just apologizing. Isn't that the yeah, example? Allah. It's not the example of um, Imam Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah that they would master the opponent's arguments and then afterwards they would go and just like slaughter their like entire yeah. arguments. You have to, like you have to, if you really want to, we don't have the, we don't have the luxury to just sit back and kind of like wave our hands and say, oh, okay, yeah, this is not serious. We don't have to take liberalism, modernism, feminism seriously. We don't have the luxury of doing that because it's the dominant ideologies. Like everyone is getting these ideologies. It's just in the water. Like that's just what is being, it's not like by those names, but everything that people are consuming in terms of culture, in terms of media, in terms of movie, music, film, uh, the university environment, education, uh, public studies. schools, all, all of this. No, you don't even have to be in gender studies. That's my point. You don't have to be in gender studies or you don't have to be in a philosophy class learning oh this is what you know john locke the liberal had to say like you don't have to actually be in those classes to get the ideas the ideas are just everywhere yeah, they're just like, like packaged like, like trojan horse right yeah it's like, like it's in the air and then it just gets on your clothes and then you just smell bad afterwards exactly yeah so it, it and that smell like that distorts your nose like what smells good to you and then you can't see, smell the rose, you know, the beauty that is Islam. You can't smell it properly because you have all of this junk that's, you know, covering your whole body and covering your nose. So that's a yeah. perfect analogy for it. Yeah, it corrupts your fitzal in a sense. Like, and you're getting it fed everywhere. Like you said, not necessarily gender studies, but like all, all fields, right? And uh, just in school, media, and uh, this kind of, and it also, it affects your, 
it kind of also creates myths that are not true, right? I think you, like, you know, now there's the myth of like, oh, like the wife in the Muslim world, she's oppressed. Us Westerners, we need to go save her. She has to cover herself, like yeah. blah blah blah. And when studies probably would show the opposite, right? There's like, you know, that was actually here. like, uh, like colonizers. They used to actually perpetuate this like this narrative that Muslim men are brutes, and that the Muslim woman needs to be saved by the um, by the colonizers and they would have like postcards and they would have uh, at least the the French in Algeria they would send back postcards about this and they'd have like propaganda posters in 1957 I think I shared a tweet about this that like in French it would write um, uh, aren't you pretty unveil yourself and then it would have like a cartoon image of a, of a Muslim woman right yeah it's all uh, propaganda and it wasn't just Muslims that they were attacking they were using the same exact tactics against Native Americans against the Chinese against different African nations. <laughs> it's, it was all the same tactic from the European colonizers and, and the American uh, colonizers um, is to depict uh, to go this route of saving the savage woman, uh, saving her from savage the savage men. Yeah. And so it's not it wasn't just Muslims. For Muslims, it just became like okay, how do we make Islam look as barbaric as possible? And how do we portray Islam as the oppression, uh, as the oppressor of women and children? And so this is, yeah, you're right. This is exactly the kind of tactic that they use to justify their uh, invasion, occupation, genocide of Muslims and also many other nations. Wasn't it called like the white man's burden? Exactly. White man's burden. The colonizing mission. Yeah, colonizing mission. Uh, so this kind of leads into the next question. No, no, wait. This kind of leads into the next question, bro. <laughs> okay, bro. Go ahead. So, uh, I'm just going to read it straight from the from the list. In the past, we've seen apologetics always taking a defensive stance to attacks against Islam, but now, uh, with with your Muslim skeptic brand, of course, uh, and along with a bunch of other intellectuals such as Asadullah Andalusi, uh, Abdullah Andalusi, uh, who has a really nice presentation on slavery, by the way, uh, Hamza Sources, Muhammad Hijab, uh, they've like kind of taken um, Islamic apologetics and taken it to the offensive, right? They've, um, they went out of their way to challenge atheists, Islamophobes, and Christians. Uh, in effect, uh, this group of people, which includes you, Brother, uh, brother Daniel, uh, have turned the tables on Islam's critics. Uh, so I wanted to ask, is this a fair assessment of the situation? And is, is, do you think the dawah of today is more on the offensive compared to, say, 20 years ago? And yeah, you know, I want to discuss that. Sure. So... When it comes to offensive and defensive, I think the best way to understand it is if, if you're grounded and you truly understand Islam and, and you've kind of internalized, um, uh, you've done your best to internalize Islam and, and Islamic values, and you really are sincere in your belief that the Prophet and the Sahaba, these were, these were the best human beings, this was the best generation, the Prophet was the best man, and you have, even if you don't understand every single aspect of everything, that's fine. Um, you don't understand every single aspect, but you still have that husn of van. Um, you still have that kind of um, best way of thinking, like of Islam, of Allah, of the Prophet Then it's not that you're being offensive, uh, it's even though fine, like you can describe that like that, but you feel this kind of need to share it. You feel this kind of need that, 
others, if only others could see what I see, if only others could feel what I feel. This is the, mo this is the motivation that drives anyone who wants to do da'wah, anyone who wants to call to Islam, and that's an obligation for all Muslims, is when you feel that, then you want to share it. And you want to, you know, if someone comes and say, oh, I think that uh, women's liberation means allowing women to, and, and men to just, you know, sleep around and do whatever they want. And this and anything other than this, as long as two people consent to something, then it's okay. And if a religion comes and says the opposite of that or prevents consensual relationships, then that's bad. So when you see that in society and you see that spread in society, then you feel like people are suffering. People are really suffering. It's causing so many problems. Um, when you look at just in this one example, like how many more than half of all children are born into single family single parent households meaning they won't have the benefit of a mother and a father and what is that going to do like statistics are very clear that children that are born in single parent households are more likely to commit crimes are more likely to drop out of school are more likely to do drugs are more likely to be unemployed and a whole host of other negative societal factors that affects them first and foremost but affects all of people all society gets affected with that kind of dust, that kind of rust, that kind of filth. And so if we know we have a better way, we know the better way, we know this is Allah who has given us guidance through Islam. It's right there. The solution is right there for us. And it's just our responsibility to take it and to realize, yes, this is the solution. This is the superior way of life. And we should share that with others. We should share that and we should insist on that. And not try to apologize or try to somehow make Islam more conformant so that we don't look strange, we don't look like freaks uh, in comparison to what has become normalized within modern society. You gotta so be we're not, we're, apologetic. What? You gotta be truly unapologetic in the right sense of the mm -hmm. term. Yeah, in the right sense. Like, you, it, unapologetic means nothing unless you're grounded in something, unless you're grounded in the truth. Otherwise, you want to be unapologetic about the bottle. You want to be unapologetic about falsehood and whatever, like, and, uh, and, and disobedience to Allah. Okay, you're you know, unapologetic in your disobedience to Allah. Great. Who cares? Beta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's that's right. Like, uh, be unapologetic, and also, like you said, we shouldn't try to make the uh, the what you call it. We should not try to make Islam conform to the modern world. In fact, it should be the other way around, right? Islam cleans up society. Right? It didn't come. Islam didn't come to the Arab world and say, hey. You guys bury your daughters. How about you, like, stop burying your daughters every day and just bury them once a week? No, it said, hey, you can't bury your daughters, period. You can't, like, you can't kill your babies. So it's the same thing, right? Like, bring Absolutely. goodness to society. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we do that out of a sense of compassion. We do that because we care about human beings. We want as many, and this is what the Prophet was like. He wanted as many people to be saved as possible, as many people to attain salvation as possible. This has to be our mindset. This has to be our sincere, true belief. And if that belief, then we shouldn't go and tell people, oh, whatever you're doing right now, that's cool. You do you. It's great. You know, as a Muslim, I accept you. We're, I'm just a tolerant guy. And, you know, sleeping around and, you know, drinking alcohol and, you know, same-sex behavior and doing all of this kind of worshiping, you know, uh, false gods. That's fine. Just keep doing it. That's nothing, you know, there's no problem with that. We're tolerant Muslims. No, but that's no, just, that's, 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 that's sentencing them. That's sentencing them to 
misery in this life and the next life. So there, were, there was a compassion in that. There's no compassion in that. Right. Also, yeah. I, I wanted to kind of uh, ask you, how has the dawah changed, or at least the methods and like the tone of dawah changed from the past 20 years till now, or the past 30 years till now? Why? You get what I'm trying to say by that? Well, 20 years, it's uh, like it's 9-11. You have to look at prior to 9-11 versus post-9-11. I think that's definitely you see a shift um, post 9-11. Right. And I, I think it's very clear why. Like there's just this huge amount of pressure, this huge amount of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And Muslims are, you know, fearful about uh, whether justified or unjustified. They're fearful of negative repercussions societally and also governmentally. Uh, Muslims were detained. Muslims were deported. Muslims were killed. Muslims were, you know in the West because of this war on terror. So that kind of, that definitely had a, a negative impact on the, I think on the tone of a lot of Dawa. Yeah. And there's no, there's no use in denying it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a generation, what's it, Y, Generation Z? Yeah, you're, you're Generation Z. Yeah, so uh, because I'm a Generation Z, I don't have very good memory of uh, the events of 9-11. So uh, what was the Dawa like what was the tone prior to 9-11 like? Yeah, I mean, prior to 9-11, uh, you would have certain subjects being much more emphasized. Certain exactly. subjects, like uh, you could question, and the topic of the halaqa um, or the dars was jihad. That was the topic. And all of these hadith on jihad and the merits of jihad, and you wouldn't have the, now the only time they hear about jihad is in terms of like so there's all kinds of hadith that the you know your generation sahih hadith important hadith you haven't even heard of these hadith <laughs> like if you're if you're not like a student of knowledge and you're just relying on like lectures and and going to the masjid there are certain hadith you have never even heard of <laughs> because they're not being taught. Um, what would be an example of that kind of hadith? Like, oh, bro, come on. That's why you said, right? I cannot. So then there's. Let's I know, 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 kind of stick on this topic a little bit. Okay, so. Uh, or like another topic. It's like jihad was just one example, but also like. Yeah, liking. That, those are. Getting things for the sake of Allah. Yeah, so you don't hear that topic being really taught um, Wait, anymore. Not like, you're not hearing. You're not hearing. Like, this is something that's very important. And yeah, that's uh, bad because it's bad because let's say you don't hear it, right? Let's say you're, you're Muslim, you don't hear it, and then the moment you hear it, you're just gonna your man's just gonna like plummet, gonna like, drop, like heart drop. Yeah, <laughs> like if you if you're being fed, hey, Islam is oh, Islam brings rights, women's rights, blah blah blah, and then you hear Arijafon Nisa or a woman has to obey her husband, then boom, just mad dissonance. Yeah, exactly. It's going to cause, I mean, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you don't teach these things, if you're not talking about it to the community in the right way, right? Yeah, there's a right mind. way and a wrong way to talk about a subject. But what would the, be the right way, according to you? Like, I think the right, it depends on the subject, but you have to be able to okay, what are the nusus? Like, what are the relevant Quranic ayat? What are the relevant examples from the seer of the Prophet Like, imagine this is a khutbah. 
or imagine like this is a general halaqa in the masjid. You, of course, will give the, all of the ayat, you'll give the examples from the sirah, you'll give the hadith, and then you'll elaborate them and then you'll note like, okay, this is an issue that some, that we feel, uh, we might feel embarrassed about. Some of us might feel embarrassed about because of the context that we're living in. And this is how you get past that. And this is how you have to understand the issue. And this is how you understand why teaching is superior to what we have around us and, and why Islam is a guidance for mankind because of this wisdom, the hikmah within the deen embedded that's flowing through every pore of the deen. Uh, and this is how, this is how you, you know, generally, like this would be an outline of how you explain certain things. Right. Yeah. And, so and we, not like, all things could be explained, right? Like, for example, like once you acknowledge Prophet is a true prophet and the Quran is Allah's, the Quran is like a miracle. It's Allah's word. Once you acknowledge that, there's certain things that you just won't know why. Right. And you have to kind of, because if you understood the why behind everything, then you would know Allah's wisdom behind everything. Right. Well, so there's a distinction within, um, you have to distinguish the illa of something, like illa, like the you know, legal cause of something, like why did Allah prohibit uh, drinking khamar, alcohol? Because right, it's, it's worse than, more harm than good, right? We know that from... Right, so you might know the illa of something, or yeah. then there's the hikmah of something. What is the wisdom of something? Yeah. So when it comes to the illa, what's where, what comes to the hikmah, like the wisdom, so the scholars would, some things are more clear cut, other things they would speculate or they would write, okay, these are the wisdoms of this and that. So most things that now are considered to be, uh, oh, like for example, homosexuality, like same-sex behavior. This is, oh, well, we're never going to know. Like now I hear like some Muslims with this kind of attitude or this kind of view. Oh, this is something we just have to accept on blind faith. Why Allah has prohibited liwal? Why Allah has prohibited same-sex behavior? We just, we can never know. But this is not how the scholars of Islam and, and the Sahaba, this is not how they understood uh, these ayat. They, this is not how they understood the... Hukum, the, what Allah has commanded regarding these kinds of behaviors. For them, it was perfectly rational. Of course, it makes sense. This is fahisha. This is something that is evil and it's disgusting. And it, has, it brings a human being down, lowers them, because they're engaging in a kind of israf, a kind of excessive desire, um, shahwa. Yeah. And this is what destroys the human being. And it destroys marriage it destroys family it destroys uh society this is a corruption that is going to spread and it's going to dismantle right uh so this is how they understood yeah. <laughs> because they when they you know they weren't saying that oh wow so qom lut was destroyed like in the worst way allah is describing it to us in all of these different ayats in the quran and all of these different suar of the quran he's describing allah is describing this hmm, i wonder why yeah. i guess there's just no reason right. no they understand <laughs> They understood why. They understood exactly why. Uh, but because we've been influenced by modernity, we've been influenced by a, a secular sexual ethic and this idea of consent. Oh, as long as two people, uh, you know, love each other and they consent, then there's no problem. Like we've internalized this, then that's changed our intuitions. Like we've been brainwashed. It ties again to that the one idea we were talking about earlier, the experiential aspect of truth as well. For example, for, from the experiential aspect of truth, uh, we know that like we know incest is wrong okay uh, but like rash like i don't want to say like logically 
Okay, if you, if you remove if you have all, two consenting you people, all emotion, you remove all intuition. Like logically, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, at least that's what atheists will say as well, right? Similarly, you can you can kind of draw an analogy to to like same sex behavior, right? That most societies in the world they don't like it. Okay, like even um, even indigenous cultures, okay, so like many of them, right? So it, it kind of ties in back to the idea of an experiential aspect of truth as well that you just kind of intuitively know that it's wrong. Yeah, of course. Your moral intuitions are influenced by what you experience and your what you're surrounded by in your culture, of course. Okay, so as Muslims in the West, then how do we go about, like, as Muslim men or just you in general, as Muslims in the West, how do you go about internalizing uh, an Islamic paradigm as the moral compass instead of uh, in, instead of like internalizing the modernity, like lib, like postmodern uh, paradigm? Call it progressivism. Or progressivism, yeah, put it that way. Yeah, it's in a, in, way, in some ways it's complicated. In some ways, it's very simple. Um, it's simple because Muslims have been doing it for centuries. Um, it's only within very recent times that uh, we've been thrust into this kind of uh, progressive paradigm, this modernist paradigm. And so the question is, how do we get back? How do we uh, how do some of us who are struggling within this paradigm, how do we rediscover the Islamic paradigm and ground ourselves in that? So we've been doing it that practically. I think that this is something where we have to, first of all, know what's obligatory to know. And I always emphasize this because it's something that really enriched my life um, as a Muslim is to, well, what is, requ what is re a Muslim required to know um, what is what's fardain knowledge? So knowledge of how to tahara, for example, how to purify yourself, how to pray, how to fast, how to give zakat, how to do hajj, how to, you know, all the pillars of Islam, um, the pillars of iman, belief in Allah and the angels and the books and the messengers and the uh, akhirah in qadr, uh, all of these things. Well, what do we have to know about Allah? What do we have to know about the angels? All of these kinds of uh, important pieces of information for us to be considered to have Iman in the first place. Can you really have Iman if you don't believe in the angels? No, you can't. Just like you can't be a Muslim if you don't fast Ramadan, or you don't think that fasting in Ramadan is obligatory. Um, if you reject that, yeah, Muslims don't have to fast in Ramadan, regardless of whether you yourself fast or not, you're not a Muslim. So um, this is something that Muslims need to, and that's why, I feel like Islamic literacy amongst younger generations is pretty low, uh, like in the colleges and these liberal arts universities, is because Muslims are not learning this, these basic things like the ABCs of Islam. And it's because we're like myself, I didn't know, I didn't even know how to read Quran when I went to college. Like I didn't even know how to read Arabic when I went to college, let alone like what was necessary for pr uh, praying. I was praying, but I, was I praying correctly, like according to the right ways of praying? Um, so this is something that pe Muslims are not learning. Young Muslims are not learning because of whatever reason. So that's the first step is like having a baseline of education, a baseline of knowledge of Islam so that we save ourselves because that's the priority. We want to be saved. Um, and so that knowledge is a prerequisite for that. Then after that, um, 
we have to create strong families. We have to create strong families where the next generation is not going to have the same kinds of weaknesses and problems that we have, that we had, right? Um, because if we're going to just repeat the same pattern, there's going to be a devolution, right? If the, our generation, if the, if the generation following us is worse than us, it's going to just be a downfall. And you won't have Islam in America or any Islam that anyone can recognize within two or three generations, right? So how do we prevent that kind of downward slide where we want, our goal should be that the next generation of Muslims, our children are going to be better than us. They're going to be better prepared. They're going to be better understanding Islam than we did. And when they go to college and when they get a job, they're going to, they're going to know things that we didn't know about Let's the religion. It. Let's, do, Let's it. do it. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. So this, this requires, but this requires strong families. This requires strong, stable family, strong, stable marriages. And unfortunately, the entire cultural tide is opposed to that. Yes. Marriage is dissolving. Marriage is dissolving. Families are breaking down. People are being atomized because of this individual mentality that comes from progressivism, that comes from liberalism and feminism. Gender roles are vague now. Yeah, no gender roles anymore. Yeah, no gender roles. Gender is vague. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Brother Daniel, my question is, how does strong families uh, create a better, uh, well, at least more intellectually um, adept Muslim, like you, you get more what intellectually, saying? like kind of uh, sound or strong. Yeah, I mean, like even if you have a strong family, like a lot of these um, young Muslims, like our age, they come from strong families, but they're those parents are not well educated in terms of Islam. They don't know how to deal with modernity because they're they're like fresh off the boat. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So like they, just pray. They, they, just pray. they don't know how to deal. They don't know how to deal with modernity. Okay, they don't know how to deal with progressivism. They don't know these arguments, right? So, yeah. So I, this is I'm just giving you like each piece. I think it all has to come together, right? So one piece is the knowledge aspect. We yeah. need to get to a point of like a baseline standard of knowledge where we guarantee our salvation. Right. Right. That's priority number one. Then we start thinking about our children. Okay. And so that's priority number two, because we want them to be, uh, you know, better than we were. Yes. Then the third priority, like we want to excel. We want, we're aiming for Ihsan. Okay. Then um, I think that it's necessary to understand these ideologies and to uh, critique them so that we can purify certain understandings of Islam. Because right now what I'm seeing in certain communities and certain parts of the Muslim community is a lot of very wrong ideas, a, a, a lot of very anti-Islamic ideas that are distorting people's understanding and, and pulling them and taking them out of Islam. Or like, and they don't necessarily know it themselves. They don't necessarily know it themselves. Like I was watching um, this uh, this interview, of, like it, uh, the BBC was interviewing uh, what it's like to be a Muslim woman in the UK. And they're interviewing these girls and they're much you know, wearing hijab and, you know, they were, they considered themselves and by all appearances seemed like practicing Muslims. And then they're just talking, asking them, well, why are you, why do you wear hijab? Why do you wear hijab? They're like going through the line. And then one of the, one of the girls said, and, and this, when I say girl, I mean, she's like in her teens, like your age or, or 20s, early 20s. And she said, 
yeah, you know, I wear the hijab because it's a choice. I choose to wear the hijab. I mean, technically, she's not. Uh, and, wrong, but no, no, but this is what no. Let, let me finish. So yeah. I choose to wear a hijab, and I don't wear it because someone has told me that I have to wear it. Even if God Himself told me you have to wear a hijab, I wouldn't wear it. No, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, think like this is like the implications of this are kofar. Like yeah. this is, but she doesn't even recognize that. Like she's okay. taken this kind of ideology of choice and everything. All value comes through your ability to choose one thing or another, like it's completely confused. It's, okay. it's a completely incoherent ideology to think that, oh, everything is about choice. Yeah. Um, why? But, because there are many things that we understand, like, no, there's no choice in the matter. You have to obey, like the law. The law is not about choice. You can't say, oh, I uh, choose not to obey traffic laws or I choose not to obey, like, no, you can't, you can choose that, but you're doing it in violation of law. You're choosing it in violation of morality. Like, oh, I choose to, or for example, morality, I choose to be a white supremacist. Like I choose, I choose to think that the white race is superior to all other races. Like, that's why I choose. Like, are you going to impose on me? Like this kind of racial tolerance? You're going to choose it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that's not what I meant. I mean, they, they can choose it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you can choose it, but it's immoral, right? Of course. It's immoral. Yeah, it's of course. So you can choose not to wear hijab, but you're doing something very immoral. And we can say that you're sinning, and this is something that, so, but that's what they want to say. Like, no, I choose it. If I choose not to, then you can't judge me. You can't say that this is wrong. You can't say that this is, you can't say, you can't look less of me because of that choice. Okay, well, yeah, a white supremacy. Just because I choose to think that the white race is superior, you can't look down on me. You can't judge me. You can't. No, I wouldn't accept that. <laughs> yeah, uh, brother Daniel. Also, you said that like education. Okay, that's like the, that's like the, one of the cornerstones. Cornerstones, right? Okay, but well, when you're referring to education, do you mean like the traditional understanding of education, or do you mean uh, the secular understanding of education? No, I mean traditional understanding. So traditional understanding of is, uh, when it comes to fardain knowledge, like the individually obligatory aspects of Islamic knowledge, there come in three categories. You have Islam, Iman, Ihsan, right? Yeah. So you have to know that, you know, every aspect of those three pillars. And Ihsan is very important, like when it comes to tazkiyah, when it comes to ikhlas, like battling the nafs, battling the ego, like this is something that's very, very important. Uh, battling shahawat, battling uh, these desires. These are this is knowledge that Muslims need to have. You need to have this very standard baseline of education from those three aspects. Uh, and this is uh, coming from like why these three aspects? Well, this is from the Hadith Jibril. This is when Jibril Aisam came to the Prophet and asked him, "What is Islam? What is Iman? What is Ihsan?" And the Prophet after the questioning was done and the angel left. Uh, he told this, the companions who didn't know that this was Jibril, that this was Jibril coming to teach you your religion, right? So this is what Islam is, is these three components. And that's why, this is why, you know, traditionally scholars have divided into these three components. But yeah, education, that kind of traditional education, not secular education, not going to Islamic studies at your university, that's not, and learning from a non-Muslim professor what Islam is, that's not what I mean. I mean the... Uh, <laughs> Definitely not. No, no, yeah. but that's not what I mean either. I mean like, oh, okay. for example, like going to the masjid, sitting down with the sheikh over there versus like learning online from like places like Seekers Hub. I don't, I've never taken a course from there, but I'm, I don't know how credible they are. Um, or uh, taking Al-Asna, like the Al-Asna course, for example, Oh, and you're not going to get that from Alasna. 
let me just clarify that. But you're not gonna, uh, you're not gonna get what from us. We're not teaching. We're not teaching like the you of salah, or we're not teaching fiqh of tahara, or we're not teaching those kinds of traditional yeah. Islamic subjects. We're just focused on modern ideologies and their critique of Islam and how Islam overcomes those challenges. But when it comes to, so as far as practically, what should young Muslims do? Yes, you need to find like, as, uh, if you can find certain things online, great. Like as long as they're reputable and they're, as long as they're teaching these things and they're, you know, reputable. Pay the sound. Yeah. Yeah, pay the sound. Yeah, definitely. There's, I mean, if you can only, if you can find someone in person, all the better, all the better. But I mean, sometimes you can't, uh, you can't, or it's inconvenient, it's impractical, especially if you're a student. There are online options. There are different things that you can, you know, learn online and it, it's just fine. You're learning from a live person. Like you're, st you still have a teacher who's teaching you. You can ask questions. And, um, I mean that if that's the only option you have, then, you know, so I have another question for you. Um, do you think it's dangerous for your Iman to engage with Western philosophy? Uh, how would you go about approaching philosophy as a Muslim? Yeah. So I studied, Western philosophy, I think the worst thing that Muslims can do is to take philosophy 101, like as soon as they get into college. Philosophy 101 is just um, basically telling the student, um, oh, you can question all your beliefs. All your beliefs can be questioned. Oh, look, you know, here is a pen. I have a pen in my hand. But do you really know that there's a pen in my hand? Ooh, you know, this is philosophy. Like this is what they literally what they talk about in philosophy 101. And if you're not aware of like what's going on, it can lead to a lot of confusion and doubts. So I recommend like Muslims don't take philosophy 101. It's a waste of time. If you want to take philosophy in college, take um, philosophy of science or take logic. Um, those will be worth your time and they'll actually help you understand a lot of different uh, aspects of Western thought and philosophical thought. As far as engaging with philosophy, I think that if it's a, a principled engagement through the right channels, then it's something important. And that's what I'm trying to do with my writing and my, my teaching is a principled engagement with philosophy from a critical perspective to champion Islam and to defend Islam against these Western ideologies. So from that frame, then yes, I obviously think that Muslims need to be able to engage with Western philosophy is something that is or a requirement of being able to address these doubts and these shubuhat that Muslims have. You can't address these doubts without engaging in Western philosophy, but that should be done by people who uh, are trained for that and who, you know, won't fall for things. But the average, like, lay Muslim, like, don't get in, like, don't go to the source of the toxicity. Don't go to the source of the poison by taking philosophy classes in the university. But it, you don't even have to, like, if you take a gender studies class in the university, you're getting Western philosophy. Uh, you're getting that kind of poison from that class. So it's something that you can't really avoid, unfortunately. And that's why it's so necessary to create material, create resources where Muslims can immunize themselves, basically protect themselves against these kinds of ideologies that will threaten their iman. Also, I would highly recommend reading this book, The Divine Reality by Hamza Tortis, as a way to vaccinate yourself from all of this uh, disease. <laughs> At least that's, that's, that's what helped me get past Philosophy 101. Because I, I took that oh, class yeah. and then I took nothing else. So I, I did exactly what oh. you told me to do. SubhanAllah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a problem. You have examples of 
you know, I, I heard a couple of cases or more, more than a couple of cases. Like I, I gave a class in New Jersey and I gave a class in Tampa and I gave a class in like um, Oklahoma. And in each of these places, I heard the same exact story of a, uh, of a Muslim kid who was memorizing Quran and he was in Islamic school for uh, his whole life. And then he went to college and took one philosophy class and he left Islam. I heard this example in three different places. It's like, what's going on? Like, why is this happening? And it's, it's because, you know, you shouldn't be taking that class if you don't have the kind of tools necessary to be able to understand what's happening. Um, well. But uh, I'm also, so like when you mean education, do you mean, you don't necessarily mean refuting the ideologies of today. When you mean education, you mean like, can you, can you, can you elaborate exactly what you mean? Okay. You right, have, so, no, you just said the basic, uh, like part of the, like the obligations and then like you basic said elementary that, school stuff. No, he's saying like what you need to know at a minimum, your minimum is uh, what you need to know for the religion. Like what's, I don't know, so, yeah, you're not right? going like, I'm, I don't mean you just learn the five pillars. Yeah. Of course you learn that in elementary school, yeah. but like when it comes to uh, something like wudu, right. Uh, wudu. Yeah. You learn, some of the basics of wudu and a typical like Islamic school when you're in first grade or whatever, you learn that. But there are other details. There's a lot of other details in knowing, okay, well, what kind of water can you actually use when you make, when you want to make wudu or like when you want to make ghusl or what is, what is it that lifts, uh, you know, what, uh, where, how do you lose your wudu? How do you lose, how do you enter a state um, where you are obligated to make ghusl before pray. All of these details, there's a hundred details like that okay. that you have to study and you have to know. Uh, otherwise, you, will, you won't be able to pray properly because you're not in a state of tahara. Uh, okay. When it comes to prayer itself, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to zakat, all of those details, you need to know it. It's not just like, oh yeah, I know what we have to give zakat. Okay, well, what do you, give zakat, do you pay zakat on? What is uh, what falls under that? How much are you giving? On, on what time scale are you giving it? So on and so forth. Those are details that it doesn't take you, it's not going to take you a lifetime to learn. It's just going to take like, if you dedicated yourself to learning them, you could learn them in a semester. Yeah. Like if full time you're learning, you could do it in a semester. If you can't do it like in four years, like just like his, uh, within your college years, if you did it part time, like, oh, like once a week, I'm going to a halakha for an hour and a half. And I'm focusing on the and learning these things. Within four years, you could do it. Yeah. But we're, that's because we're like older, and that has there hasn't been a set curriculum. There hasn't been a standardized curriculum that you can get that. And unfortunately, Islamic schools, from what I hear, many of them are not teaching it like that. They're not teach like people are graduating from Islamic school and they don't even know these basic things. Right. Yeah. So it's a problem. Let me go. I wanna... No, 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 no. Okay. I mean, just today. Well, I wanted to say this before. No, it's my turn. Okay, like just from my, just from my MSA, today, we we talked about uh, practical Islamic finance. Okay, like we, we talked about um, we talked about riba, we talked about gharar, we talked about maser. Uh, mm -hmm. We 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 were gonna talk about zakat as well, but uh, but uh, we saved that for a halakha for for next time. So, do you think it's possible that maybe in the near future you could delegate the task to someone about creating 
like a bullet point list of what MSAs should um, like should cover at least within within one semester within the year? Yeah, we developed when I was in undergrad at Harvard. Um, myself and a couple of other students were trying to create that curriculum with our chaplain, um, um, who was there at the time, and he was a scholar, mashallah. And so he was helping us develop this kind of curriculum. Okay, within four years, you need to cover these topics, and you need to like at least have the opportunity, like a student in the, on campus has the opportunity to, to attend the halaqa or to attend durus over the course of four years, and by the end of it, uh, have all of the fardai knowledge um, when it comes to what everyone is, all Muslims are obligated to know. Okay. So, then, so that's something that uh, I, I don't know if it was fully completely developed. I, I have to go back and look at it. I have to ask my wife also because she was part of developing that one as well. She's from Harvard too. Um, but I mean, is that something that you guys are looking for? <laughs> like a curriculum like that? No, uh, I think I Fahd is just uh, no, no, intellectually entertaining himself a little bit. Uh, but no, here's, no, here's my, no, here's the thing. Here's wait, wait, I just want to summarize this last point, okay? So, oh, no, no, you interrupted me. I'm interrupting you. Okay, education, strong families, and then after that, attacking prevailing ideologies. Sure, yeah, you can summarize it like that. No, so no, that's kind of what I wanted to ask. Like, if you're growing up in the West, right? So let's say you grew up in a Muslim country and someone grew up in a non-Muslim country. And growing up in a Muslim country, you take a lot of things for granted and they're very axiomatic, right? So when we're going to hit it up. Right, society's not telling you actively, yo, hijab is barbaric. Society's mm. not actively telling you these things. Society's not actively telling you, go, yo, let's go party, let's get lit. Whereas in the West, society's literally telling you every day from like TV to basically, yo, like to not worship Allah. It's kind of bringing yeah. you away from the deen. So don't you, like, as a parent or like just as a young Muslim, don't you want to have uh, a well rounded understanding of the criticisms and flaws of modernity? and the flaws of all these liberalist ideas. Yeah, of course, you need to understand what these, what these ideologies are calling for and what's the result of these ideologies because that doesn't get as much airtime, right? Because if you like getting lit and partying and all this thing, where's it coming from? It's coming from a hedonism that the highest purpose that you have is to fulfill your desires, yeah. is to feel pleasure, is to feel, you know, to pursue a, you know, a career to pursue that kind of self-fulfillment, that self-actualization. That's really the whole purpose of your existence. This is what is constantly being told to people through all of these different cultural and institutional yeah. needs. But what is the result of that? Like what is actually going to result? And we don't have to speculate. We see it around us. You see people who will actually admit, who will actually say like, this is how I live my life and now I'm alone. I'm dying alone. I'm in like, uh, you know, this apartment by myself as a 70 year old. I'm like watching TV by myself. I don't have a, a wife or a husband. I'm, I don't have a spouse. I don't have children. Or if I do have children, I'm completely alienated from them because they were, you know, I didn't care about them and I, w I didn't teach them to care about me. There's no kind of uh, relationship there. There's no concept of bir al-walidain. Um, I'm a, I don't have any kind of extended network of friends and community. Okay. I had a successful career. I, I dedicated my best years of my life to pursuing and, and making more money for this corporate. You know, I, I was a C-level executive. I climbed the corporate ladder. I made it. And then now I'm a 70 year old, uh, you know, medicated by myself in front of the TV. You're going to die. 
And no one's going to know that you're dead because no one's coming to check on you, to see you, to visit you. You're just dead in your couch in front of the TV by yourself. The only way that people are going to know you're dead is because your corpse is going to smell so bad that the people outside of your apartment are going to smell that and then call the police. The police are going to discover your rotting corpse <laughs> and take, take you out to incinerate you. That is the image that we have to pound in the head of people because this is, this is the future. This is what the world is going to be. It is. The world it already is. Like I was teaching at, in Tampa in December and I was, I was giving this whole spiel. And then one of the students who was older, he was like, he was saying that, you know, people, the younger people here might think you're exaggerating, Daniel. They don't understand that this is, you're describing it exactly true to life. Because when I was living in Brooklyn, I lived in one of these apartment buildings where you just have atomized individuals just living in these, these, these units no one knew each other. No one had like a big family. Everyone's just like going to the subway, going to work, coming back, you know, watching TV, going to sleep, waking up and doing it all over again. And my neighbor died and there was this terrible smell in the hallway of our apartment building. And no one knew what it was until we found out, oh, someone died and no one knew. Like this person has been rotting for three months and we just found out about it. Uh, so this is something that's real. It's happening. Uh, in, I often bring up the example of Japan, but it's something that happens in, in the U.S. as well. In Japan, there's an entire industry of corpse cleaners. Like they have companies like are just dedicated to taking rotting corpses from apartments because it happens so often in Japan. And Japan is the is often described as the pinnacle of modernity. Like they have, they're so clean and they're so technologically advanced. But as far as it comes to spiritual realities, as far as it comes to family and marriage, they're the worst of the worst. Like there's no, uh, the, the government over there has to incentivize people to have kids. People don't even want to have kids. Why should I have kids? Kids are a responsibility. Kids are a burden that take me away from my being a productive worker. And, and so the government there has to encourage people to even have children. Right. No, but uh, that one point you made about um, the solution to family dissolution, um, we have to pound that image that you're going to be alone when you're old in their heads. So you're kind of referring to heuristics rather than rational, uh, rather than appealing to rational convictions, right? So um, are you implying that heuristics are far more powerful um, means of convincing someone else rather than like logical argumentation? Like at least the masses, because the masses typically they aren't as smart and they don't think with their heads as much as they think with their emotions. Well, the kind of heuristics that you're mentioning are that when when we get the message of oh you need to go and party and get lit and have fun and pursue desire, that's not a logical argument, right? But it, yeah. people find it convincing and or they are pulled by it. Um, so there, we have these kinds of, uh, inbuilt into us, like that appeals to the nafs that appeals to the shahawat, like, okay, yeah, I do feel like fulfilling myself in this way. Right. Uh, and so that's why it's appealing. Well, another thing that another kind of intuition that we have that Allah has given us is the desire to have a family, a desire yeah. to have children, a desire to have a loving faithful spouse and to have a companion to share life with and to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, for the sake of your family, for the sake of love of your children. These are also intuitions that we have. 
and, and so this, these are the kinds of things that this is how we can speak to those kinds of intuitions. Islam as a religion entirely is speaking to these kinds of intuitions amongst other intuitions that Allah has created us with. Right. Yeah. Like Islam comes with the, it comes with the solution, both like for our desires and for like for, for nafs desire, like our, I guess more animalistic desires, right? It channels them through marriage, for example, right? If you want to right. hopefully do, do so in the halal manner. And then also like the desire to have a family, uh, have a family, have a wife and, you know, have that whole structure. Uh, and, and like you said, the modern world is, it's kind of against the, uh, like we're being, we're kind of, we're, you know, like get party, get lit. Oh, don't have kids. I recently read an article. How much money you can save for not having kids. Uh, be corporate. Like women are being shamed for being mothers, right? They're being shamed for being homemakers, caretakers. So like everything is like, basically what's contrary, what's contrary to Islam is becoming more popular. And that's pulling people away. So we have to consciously, we, kind of, we have to consciously go harder on Islam. There's this one book called uh, Dajjal, the Antichrist, by, written by Ahmed Thompson. Uh, in it, he talks about how what's considered moral today is being disfamized and what's considered immoral is being euphemized. Right? So right. like reality is, our conception of morality is being inverted. Yeah, of course. Just, just by the language that we're using. Yeah, yeah isn't this a sign of the hours? I yeah, mean, of course. That's kind of what this is all about. And, yeah, this is exactly what um, the Prophet uh, told, told us would happen, is that everything is going to be inverted. Like the trustworthy person would be seen as a liar, and the liar would be seen as trustworthy. The most immoral would be seen as the best in society, and the most moral, God-conscious uh, would be seen as uh, you know, low and bad and backwards. So this is what the Prophet has told us. This is a complete inversion. Uh, of reality <clears throat> and so we have to be conscious of that and we also have to realize that it, we're going to be unpopular for for speaking you know the truth we're going to get a lot of pushback we're going to get a lot of hate we're going to get a lot of uh and and it gets worse and worse and it's going to get worse and worse and worse so yeah. but this is like this is our job we can't like back down because of it yeah Fahad and i were we were actually when you're coming up with the questions so uh, you want to ask that oh uh, you're very polarizing on the uh, on your. No, on your no, no, let's do it like this. Let's do it like this. Speaking of hate, okay. No, no, but hold on. Speaking <laughs> oh, of transition. Hold on. You actually think you're polarizing though, because because people say you're polarizing. People say you you're actually uh, deliberate with the way you write. Do you no, view I, yourself as that, or are you telling the truth? That's the question. No, I, I view myself as writing in a very straightforward forthright, clear-cut way. There are certain things in Islam that are clear-cut. They're they're, they're not uh, fuzzy. They're not cotton candy. They're, it's very clear-cut. And you're not supposed to portray them as being fuzzy. Things that are clear-cut are not supposed to, you sh you're not supposed to like be ambiguous about them or be wishy-washy about these kinds of issues that are clear-cut. Right. And so I'm just trying to be clear-cut on, on things that are clear-cut. I want to be clear-cut. I want to be straight, right? Well, and See, people, would say you're polarizing. No, I, I would say on some. So that's gonna be polarizing. That's gonna if you're clear cut, it's gonna Islam. Then you're saying Islam is polarizing. No, tell no, me no, something. No. Tell me something that if so if you <laughs> this is people people who say that oh Daniel you're polarizing or don't Daniel you're aggressive or this and that. Tell me, give me an example. What is one thing that I've said? One thing that I've posted that is polarizing in a way that Islam is not polarizing in. Or it's not, not clear cut anymore. I'll, I'll, pull huh? I'll try to pull something up right now. Rex. Go ahead. 
No, um, but I I would say that, uh, do you, do you believe that in some of your articles, uh, you go, wait, wait, do you think that in some of your articles that you write on Facebook, or at least the ones I read, uh, do you deliberately, (laughs) are you deliberately polarizing? I mean, do you, give me an example. I don't know what you're talking about. Give an example. I plead the fifth. Like, yeah, no, he's basically saying you're kind of a provocateur. Well, I don't think that. I think you just speak the truth. No, I don't do that. I don't. Yeah. If I were a provocateur, okay, provocateur means like you're, you, regardless of what is true, you're just saying it just to get a reaction, regardless of what the truth is. That's not how I do it. That's, I'm not deliberately looking out, looking for things that, oh, everyone thinks this, I'm going to say the opposite. Oh, and I get a kick out of that. And I get my jollies off of being contrarian no that's not what i'm doing okay things are if something is clear i'm gonna say something that's clear and i i do i address things i think are an issue where where i see that there's a lot of confusion when i see muslims adopting this kind of feminist ideology and they're saying things that are contrary to the dean they're throwing the ulama under the bus i'm gonna say that that's wrong i'm gonna say that this is a wrong mentality when you when you're saying that oh hijab is about choice and choice is so important and blah 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 you're saying things that are taking people out of the religion that you're saying things that are distorting people's understanding of the deen you're teaching them things that are going to make them hate the quran you're teaching them things that are going that make them hate the prophet you're teaching them things that that make them hate the khulafa okay that's what you're teaching them Exactly. I'm not gonna stand yeah. for that. I'm not gonna stand and be quiet. I'm not gonna shut my mouth because if I say, "Oh, uh, maybe this is wrong. You shouldn't be saying this." That you're gonna, "Oh, Daniel, so polarizing and aggressive." No, that's that's nonsense. Okay? Yeah, I'm I, not I agree. I'm a provocateur. I'm not a provocateur any more than if you read any of these classical texts or if you hear any of these. Uh, not necessarily ulama. Just take the average Muslim from a the previous generation, or the average Muslim from pre-9-11. How about that? It's not even 20 years, right? Takes an average Muslim, and the kinds of things that they will say just in their expression of Islam, oh, that's, whoa, dude, come on, you're taking it too far. That's not PC. That's not, you know, diplomatic. That's not, that's not cool, bro. <laughs> you're, that's not cool. You're driving people away from Islam, bro. That's, you know, why are you, dude, where's your adab, man? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, this is just Islam. I'm just I'm just talking about Islam, my, my religion. What's wrong? Whoa, dude, come on. Well, this so is that's the thing. No, this is not this is nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say you see, you're not you're not a provocateur. You just speak the truth and you're straightforward. And the reason people think you are is because people are shying away from these topics. So when you shy away from the topics, someone like you who says who says facts that are in the that are straight or mainstream, orthodox, Sunni Islam interpretations, right? When, when you say these things that are actually in, within the tradition, and then, the, like, what you call it? When you have, like, speakers shying away from these topics, they become, uh, what you call it? They become, uh, they become weird. They become, like, aggressive, even though you're not being aggressive, right? It's just, it's just, it's perceived that way because of today's paradigm and discourse, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, there are certain things that, I have two points. The first point is that, this idea of being polarizing no one says that on other issues like you have people who are saying muslim figures who are insulting like donald trump day and night there's you know fine like they're using you know vulgar language or or they're like going like this women's march that just happened you have these muslim figures are going there and shouting all 
oh, this, then this and that. Or they're like going uh, to the the Supreme Court Kavanaugh hearings. Like they're getting arrested. Like they're get, they're sitting in against like Trump and being arrested by police because they're like doing this kind of protest. No one says, oh, wow, that's polarizing. Oh, wow, you know, that's so that's so aggressive. Like, why are you, where's your adab? Like you're breaking the law. Like, oh, you're polarizing Americans. Because don't you know, like 50% of America is actually Republican. 50% of America is actually like supporting Trump. And like you're, you're, you know, cursing him out. You're calling him up mother effer on TV and like, aren't you? No, no, but that's okay. that, right? The people who are criticizing me, the people who are, yeah, exactly. The people who are criticizing me as, oh, he has bad ab and he's polarizing. He's just a provocateur. They have nothing to say. They have literally nothing to say about these individuals. Why? Why? Because it's, they're just, you agree with their politics. That's all. You agree with their position. Yeah. That's sad, that, right? So that's, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, that's that. I agree. That's inconsistent. Um, it's completely inconsistent, and it's it's transparently inconsistent. Like, there's people like I remember like people are criticizing me for being polarizing and being aggressive, and then they're turning around and supporting one of these like uh, feminist activists saying that yeah I went to uh, Eid prayers and the khatib didn't uh, mention mention Ibrahim ISM but didn't mention Hajab. And he excluded her, he excluded women. So this is patriarchal. And I didn't need to hear that kind of misogynistic khatib. And going on this rant, basically, completely dismissing uh, whoever the khatib was, completely dismissing, like, and go, just spouting off, you know? And you criticizing me on uh, one day one, you're turning around the same day and praising, oh, mashallah, speak truth. Sisters, truth to power, power unapologetic. Yeah, you're empowered. Like you say, oh, subhanAllah, we really need to reflect on these deep truths from this feminist activist. Oh, subhanAllah. Oh, Daniel, you're so polarizing. Oh, where'd you learn? Where'd you study? Where's your adab? Like, this is the kind of inconsistency. Like, what are you yeah, talking double about? Standard. Like, double okay, standard. Okay, it's a complete um, double standard. I found one passage. Um, like, I've been just, like, I didn't, I didn't pull up an article from before. So I was just kind of just quickly skimming. Um, I found this one paragraph. When it comes to child abuse, women are far more likely to be abusers than men. Okay, okay, fine. Fact. Okay, fact. That's sure. A fact. Okay. According to the U.S. Department of Health. Hold on, before you continue, statistically, for our listeners, Daniel's not just saying that. Oh yeah, he's just not. No, it's coming from the U.S. Okay, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, approximately forty percent of child abuse of child victims of abuse were maltreated by their mothers acting alone while only 18% of them were maltreated by their fathers acting alone. Okay, and then, and then like, you, you post, like, a, a picture of the girl, uh, Lauren Wade, Ya Rabbi. Okay, and then afterwards, you write, women have a child abuse problem. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the case, yeah. That's not polarizing, because that's... <laughs> no, bro, that's polarizing. No, it's not. Yeah, it is, come on. No, statistically, they're higher, so it's a problem. So we should address it. If it was the other way around, if it was men abuse, uh, like, men abuse women, for example, right? Everyone's okay with the, the discussing that. Okay, yeah, everyone. Okay, everyone is okay with it. But what my point is that is that brother Daniel he like deliberately like it like it goes into the opposite direction. No, but try to under try to understand what I'm trying to do with that sentence. Okay, like since you mentioned a specific example, like let me give you the intention behind it. No, no, I, I kind of I understand the attention because like normally it's the other way around. So now you're just kind of flipping the narrative right back on them. No, but why am I flipping? How ridiculous the narrative? The first argument was in the first place. 
Yeah, exactly. Because these are the kinds of statements like men are, you know, we have men a toxic trash. masculinity problem. Men, we have toxic a patriarchy is a problem. Men are just inherently abusive and violent. Men are uh, inherently oppressive. They've subjugated women. And we have patriarchy that has dictated uh, how women have lived their lives for centuries. And we need to fight against this patriarchy. All of this is a feminist discourse that is attacking um it's attacking men, but the point is that it's attacking tradition. It's attacking Islam. It's attacking tradition in general. And that's, this goes back to progressivism, right? And so this is the kind of argument that they make and the kinds of claims that they make. And it's taken for granted. Like it's people just think like, yeah, you're right. Women were mistreated in the past and now we know better. Women, people in the past were misogynist abusers and now we, we just know better. Like this is the kind of view that people have of history. It's a progressive view. Mm -hmm. yeah, but this is inaccurate it's incorrect no like muslim women were not mistreated our forefathers our ancestors the muslim scholars the muslim uh, society for centuries did not abuse systematically abuse and oppress 50 percent of the population no that is simply not the case and i mean they'll bring examples to say like why it's the case to try to prove their their point but all of these uh examples that they bring you can refute them easily you can refute them easily and then one example in this article when i say that women have a child abuse problem okay it's because they've okay I, you can take many different statistics and make it seem like oh this is something inherent to women like women are inherently wanting to beat and abuse and kill their children right, right? that's an incorrect move but that's the same exact move that you're making with men when it comes to things like uh domestic violence because right. yeah, there is there's men uh, domestic when it comes to domestic abuse, it's men are the perpetrators of sixty percent of the time, and forty percent of the time is women. Women are actually it's not that dis disparate, right? Yeah, little, to, uh, yeah, but men are still a little bit above, but they still use that statistic to say that oh well, see, men are abusing their wives. Women are are men are abusing their wives. Men are abusive. This is why we need to dismantle the patriarchy. This is why we need to have feminism. So they use that kind of argument. Well, okay, you can flip that. You can flip that and use another statistic and come up with the, with the opposite conclusion. Right. So what that should tell you is that the whole mentality, the whole mentality is wrong. The whole mentality is uh, vacuous. It's hollow. You can manipulate it however you want to make these stupid kinds of uh, points and, and to uh, endorse your stupid feminist project. Right. So in, in, no, 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 it's, it's not, <laughs> I'm just going to summarize that point. No, I agree with that. Okay. I agree with that. And here's how I'm going to summarize it. Okay. So brother Daniel, you're using polarizing, uh, you're using a polarizing rhetorical strategy to undermine feminist rhetoric. I'm mirroring the feminist rhetoric to show how ridiculous it is. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Fine. I'm not a men, quote unquote, men's rights activist. I'm not a men's rights activist. No. Men's rights activists are, I feel very uh, superficial. Like they're, they point to certain things. They basically have using the same kind of feminist uh, critique. They're using the same kind of feminist critique. They, they make good points. Like for example, uh, I cite in that same article, I cite another point that for crimes, when you look at um, the conviction rate and the sentencing, so, men get 60% more severe sentencing for the same crime as women. So both genders are committing the same crime, but men are getting sentenced to longer prison terms, more severe consequences, even though they're doing the same crime. 
Okay, so this is so men's rights activists will point and say, oh, well, this is biased, like this is not fair, like we need to like make things more even, right? Okay, that's fine, like that's a fine critique. Or they'll they'll point to like uh, marriage and divorce and child custody and how in 99% of cases or 95% of cases, women are granted custody even when they're abusive or what, even when they have drug problems and so forth. I mean, these are all good critiques, they're fine. But it's very shallow because there's a bigger problem here. The bigger problem is how liberalism, how modernism, how modernity has destroyed the relationships between men and women and has weakened the, the institution of marriage, has weakened the institution of family. That's causing all of these kinds of problems, all of these kinds of conflicts. And the state, the muscular police state has taken the place of the family and, and, and has created this kind of atomized individualistic society in which all of this kind of, all these problems arise. That's the real critique. That's the deeper critique that men's rights activists aren't really necessarily making that critique, uh, but they're just, they're just mirroring feminist thought. But feminist thought is itself so incoherent and stupid. <laughs> so that's not, they're not like in, doing any, anything better than that. So I'm just like parody, it's like a parody. It's parroting, it's parroting, it's mirroring to show the, yeah, to show the ludicrousness of it. Did you say parroting or parodying? Both. Okay. Both. <laughs> Both. Yeah. yeah. Wait, uh, there was one more thing. So uh, this is kind of backtracking to the idea of heuristics, if, if you don't mind me um, discussing that topic a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. So we know that, I'm just going to read it straight from the, from the list. Uh, we know that most people are not smart. Uh, we know that most people convert away from Islam primarily for emotional reasons. Uh, some of these emotional reasons uh, include associating Islam with abusive parenting or seeing that non-Muslims are having more fun because a Muslim, being Muslim, um, like, let's face it, it's kind of an inherently restricted. you can't go to prom. What? Because you can't go to prom. Yeah, you can't go to prom. Like, I, didn't, I didn't go to prom in high school. Sleep with Billy the Captain. <laughs> <laughs> believe the captain <laughs> okay or uh or noting that muslim countries are not as economically developed as western nations and thinking that islam has anything to do with economic development right right so like small little illogical uh, like illogical correlations that people that ha people have in their minds uh they associate islam with backwardness for like absolutely no reason at all right okay i think that these little things play a bigger role or, or like abusive parenting is, is another example that I mentioned. Uh, these small little things play a bigger role in the psyche of Muslims who convert away from Islam than, um, than intellectual arguments, right? So keeping that, in con keeping that idea in context, what effect does... Have you watched Eretorul by any chance? No, I haven't gotten into it. Have you seen like the first episode? Do you know what it's about? I, I, I saw it's in, your, uh, it's in the Muslim Skeptic. The polygamy island. I just took a picture. Patriarchy. Patriarchy, yeah, the one about patriarchy, right. So you know about Erturu, right? That you know it's like... Yeah, I know about it, yeah. So seeing Muslims finally being the good guys, how do you think that affects the Muslim psyche? Of course, it's positive, but like... Yeah, it's positive. It's... I think it's. it has a really positive effect to seeing Muslims winning and to see muslims succeeding in things that where it's not just muslims are succeeding because of something that is not related to islam like for example muslims are excited that oh 
we have a Muslim congresswoman now. Oh, right. we're so happy about that. I'm like, okay, but her becoming a congresswoman had nothing to do with Islam. Like, it wasn't her, like, use of Islam or her, her attachment to Islam that made her uh, win the election or to win her constituents over. No, like, that was something incidental um, to, to her becoming a congresswoman, for example, or, or anything of that nature. Like, okay. About like yeah, but he, the thing is that he was talking about Islam. Like, he yeah, was, yeah. And, and his opponent was, uh, was insulting him because of Islam and he right. stood up and said no I'm a Muslim and how dare you say this and you know he was he was his Isa was coming from Islam so yeah of course that's very different okay and he's a Ilhan Omar or Rashida Slaib yeah. is not going up and talking about Alhamdulillah and La ilaha illallah and like she's not doing yeah. all those <laughs> they're not doing that if they were okay subhanAllah that would be something uh, amazing that we should support I but think it's their Muslim identity is something that's as essentially cultural, like it's just yeah, cultural a political label that they've taken on, and it's convenient for. I, I don't mean they've taken it on as if they're not really Muslim. I mean that, but that's incidental to their political success, is what I'm trying to say. It but goes into identity Habib, politics. But Habib also being Muslim is incidental to his success, right? Uh, right. So if he, he if he wasn't, for example, if he wasn't talking about uh, like if he was like uh, what's the guy's name? Conor McGregor offered him the drink and he actually took it and drank it. And, you know, he then he did win the fight. Then, no, Muslims wouldn't be supporting that. Muslims uh, wouldn't be happy about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's because he stood firm on his principles. Yeah. That yeah. Made him like that made us like him. Right. Also, it's same with Muhammad Ali. Same with Muhammad Ali. He, he was the same kind of attitude. Like boxing in and of itself, like, okay, that's a sport and there's problems uh, fiqh-wise with, you know, punching people in the face and, and making that a sport of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when it comes to uh, as far as him as a person and, and what he was saying as, a, as an activist at that time, he was opposing the Vietnam War because of his principles. He was standing by Islam. He was being attacked uh, for saying things like um, America shouldn't be going and killing uh, the Vietnamese and he shouldn't be involved in this kind of occupation of Vietnam. And he was standing by his principles in that kind of way. That, and, and also he was speaking very openly and proudly about being a Muslim. He's like, yes, I'm a Muslim. I believe in God. I believe that God is one. I believe that we're all going to die and face consequences in the afterlife. This was a big part of who he was. Like Islam was a big part of who he was because of how he would speak, what he would speak about his whole demeanor, his actions, his behavior. All of that was defined uh, in many ways by Islam. And so that's, that makes him different than someone who is just, you know, uh, or like Hakim Olajuwon, another great example. Mm -hmm. Like he was fasting in the playoffs. Yeah. Like he's, he's fasting. He's not eating. And this is something where, again, he's being principled. Like, and his teammates, the other NBA players, they knew that he was a Muslim and they respected him because of his principles. Like everyone was going to the strip club, everyone was drinking, all of his teammates, but he said no. He was like on the team bus, he's, he's reading the Quran. You know, Kenny Smith, his teammate on the Rockets was commenting on this. Like this is who Hakeem is. And so of course, like his, who he is is so in, in, enveloped in Islam that of course, like when he succeeds, it's like Islam, it's like, this is a symbol for us. Yeah. Um, so it's very different than what's another uh, Muslim basketball player that you wouldn't even know, like Shaq. Yeah, Shaq. Yeah, like Shaq. And you know, <laughs> may Allah, 
<laughs> you know, a shack, I, I, ice cube. <laughs> Muslim, yeah. So then, but you don't see any, like, he doesn't talk about it. It doesn't seem to change his behavior. And, and that's not to deny that he's a Muslim, but like his, his success doesn't have the same kind of weight for the Muslim community as the success of Hakim. Right. And we associate like, when we see him succeed, the only reason, like, okay, what's the difference between, Il, or what's that woman's, Congresswoman's name? Oh, yeah. Ilhan. Who? Ilhan Omar. Yeah, Ilhan Omar uh, versus Khabib, right? The only reason we like Khabib so much more is because we associate, like, we think of him as a role model. Dude, Ilhan is constantly violating Islamic principles. Like every yeah. time she's going out on a, she's like going out of her way to support LGBT. Like recently, I just uh, wrote an article about it yeah. on Muslim Skeptic about how she's like saying, you know, how dare uh, the military, the U.S. military, um, prohibit or ban transgendered service people? Like, why are you like? first of all it's like you're endorsing military enrollment like you're trying to encourage people to go in the military even if they are like cross-dressing and they're trans or whatever uh so you're like pro-military now and then second of all like why like this is something that's completely contrary to islam but you're like vocally like going out on a limb to try to uh support this kind of behavior and to support this kind of issue as if like oh yeah i i'm generally anti-war but as if you know it's a transgender person bombing muslims then that's okay this is this is the kind of position that she's putting out it's like you're violating all kinds of islamic principles like you're violating uh you know muslim lives muslims are being killed by the by the u.s military and you're encouraging enrollment you're encouraging like yeah we need trans people to be a, a accepted and, and to be allowed to enlist like it's right. completely illogical and then so i'm supposed to be proud of you as a muslim like i said oh wow she makes me so proud like she i'm so happy that she won the election and that she's visible in uh american politics no not at all i'm not gonna support that yeah no that, that definitely makes sense like well the reason khabib's popular or even though there's like you said religious issues with punch someone in the face uh, the difference is he's more like he shows Islamic identity much more and he doesn't like champion like he doesn't like cave on his principles right like when Connor offered him the alcohol or like he says Allah he says Alhamdulillah and he even said to the crowd I know this makes you mad Alhamdulillah, right? <laughs> Alhamdulillah. <laughs> he said it on purpose so that kind of unapologetic attitude is kind of what the Muslims need same thing I mean, with sports, like, uh, like, let me also say something like when it comes to sports I think sports are important and also combat sports. Yes, of course, there's a fiqh issue. Um, the other dimension to consider is that Muslims are being dominated physically all around the world through occupation, through uh, military domination. Like we're just, I mean, it's, it's a very sad, yeah, we're, just, like we're, we're being colonized and we, we're being, uh, so this is something that we, and we can't like do anything about it. Like we're very helpless. And we don't have the ability to do anything in this situation. Like nothing can be done. Um, so this is something that creates a problem. Like it creates like this kind of depression or it, especially in men, like in, especially in Muslim men. Yeah. And so this is, and so sports is an outlet. Sports is an outlet for that. And, and, you know, contact sports like that. 
uh, are an outlet. So I think this is another dimension of it that we have to keep in mind um, when we when we analyze something like boxing, when it's a Muslim versus a non-Muslim or, or what have you. Yeah, I mean, there's jujitsu as well. I know. Yeah, that. I started that. Jujitsu. Oh, mashallah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to get my kids into jujitsu, inshallah. Inshallah, yeah, that'd be great. You have three sons, right? Four. Four, mashallah. Yeah, yeah they're like gonna fight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, they're constantly fighting. So wrestling and hitting, and so I'm trying to get them more disciplined into like a martial art, and jujitsu I think is the best for that. Jujitsu and wrestling as well, but the wrestling is pretty good. At least in the U.S. Yeah, wrestling is good, but if you go like a wrestler, Greco-Roman wrestler goes against someone who knows jujitsu, like it's not even a match. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like you just get him into like an elbow lock or a wrist lock or a foot lock or something, and it's, it's over. Yeah. Arm bar. Um, so like when a Muslim wins, like uh, it doesn't intellectually make Islam superior. I mean, like logically, right? We just kind of associate that victory. Oh, Islam won. So now we just feel a lot better with ourselves because because we associate that man with Islam. We are associated with Islam as well. We have a bit of a... It's emotional. This is something, even this is something that we see uh, amongst the Sahaba, right? Right. Because the Sahaba were, uh, in that time, the, the superpowers in the time of the Sahaba and the time of Prophet was Rome and Persia. These were the two superpowers and they were fighting constantly. And so... In, in that kind of conflict, the Muslims of the time were supporting the Romans because they're Christians. And they see, okay, these are Ahlul Kitab versus the Persians who were fire worshippers, who were like more mushrikeen. And so the Muslims were supporting Rome and the mushrikeen, like the Quraysh, were supporting the Persians. And even though it's like, okay, they're not, it's not like Muslims fighting and it's not like a war that Muslims are involved with, but they're still rooting for one side and when the romans defeated the persians in certain battles the muslims uh felt good about that and they felt you know that, that their side had won so this is something that we find within even uh the sirah uh, of getting that kind of boost uh and and wanting the symbols any even any kind of symbol related to allah related to islam related to you know anything to do with that yeah, of course, it's part of iman to want to see that to succeed. Like right. if if someone if someone was like, oh, this Muslim won a fight, uh, that made me like uncomfortable. A question like, oh, like maybe <laughs> this guy's pansy. Like, yeah. This guy's the pansy. Yeah, or like there might be some problem with your iman if you're like, oh, I just didn't like that a Muslim won something, like yeah, a, whether a fight or something else. I, I I didn't feel anything from that. That's not good. Like you have that feeling. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one in, in uh, like um, Muhammad Hijab, for example. Muhammad, is, yeah, we're gonna discuss he, that. He had this. De- he had this debate against oh, yeah. this Christian. If you like, were not happy that he won that debate and that he like. Uh, he uh, him. Yeah, he like made him look bad and wrecked him or, or, or what have you. Yeah, then there's something wrong. Like you're not happy that a Muslim won. You're not happy that a Muslim like beat out the non-Muslim. Then there's something, there's an issue there. That, that's something to be concerned about if you don't feel anything about that. Right. I think we should use that heuristic in order to keep more Muslims Muslim and to spread Islam like that. To just like, like through yeah, optics. What? Of course, I agree completely. Yeah, like through, through optics, make it seem as though Muslims are winning like all the time. Oh, see, make it seem like. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, 
like every like every time there's like a debate or something and we win just like share it like so much more <laughs> just magnify, okay, so, magnify our successes and like minimize our losses well i'm you know i'm happy that you're thinking in this kind of way i'm very uh you know impressed that mashallah you guys are thinking in terms of optics and you're thinking in terms of how to influence people through media for the for good uh causes like this so that's very good and it's very unique to think strategically uh, and you know sometimes you have to have a more favorable angle right you have to have a more favorable angle for the Muslim yeah that's perfect that's exactly the way you need to be thinking about it um, because this is how the other side this is what the other side does this is what the other side is always doing yeah this is what they're always doing to us like they're constantly manipulating things they're constantly like making it seem like they're the ones who are on top like they have the best ideas they have the, they're constantly winning the objective quote-unquote media cnn bbc all of these outlets the university system they're constantly biasing the conversation and manipulating people okay so we need to do the same thing of course we need to do the same thing we fight fire with fire right? we need to have our own propaganda sources yeah we need yeah. to have our own kinds of uh efforts in this in this regard it's very very important yeah. Um, that we, we, but you have these weak Muslims, right? You have these kind of white knights. We have to be fair. We have to be even hand. We have to be objective. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is Islam. Yeah. This is a Muslim. We're trying to help Islam. We're trying to help Muslims. We're trying to help non-Muslims. Yeah. These guys are trying yeah. to bring like knives to like a flamethrower fight. Yeah. 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 Like, exactly. Yeah. Like, even in their shows, it's so bad. Like, there's one show my friend was watching. Basically, like on the first episode, they're on a train. There's a Muslim woman in hijab, and the guy's like a CIA agent. He goes up to her. She's like, "Oh, she has like a bomb in her under her abaya." And it's like, "Oh, my husband's forcing me to do this. Please save me." Blah blah. blah. It's like, come on. Of course, her husband's abusive. But <laughs> it's so stupid. Like, some they always paint that picture. Right. And then that's why when you have Ertugel and you have these confident Muslims, like they're righteous, they lower their gaze, high iman. You know, their women are also the prince, you know, and, and also the fact that he's handsome as well. So they associate the characteristic of handsome. Yeah, he's handsome. Muslim as well. And, 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 then, and then like the, the kuffar are like sneaky and they're shady. And, and they don't even like, look that good too. Okay, they're they ugly as well. <laughs> it, it affects you. Like that yeah, shows like watched everywhere. Yeah, mashallah. So you guys are thinking on the right track and, you know, keep working and keep doing what you're doing. Mashallah. Well, what else do we have? Uh, brother Daniel, how do you deal with haters? Because I know, like in the future, uh, just just the fact that we exist and we're not as inhibited, uh, we're going to have haters as well. So, what advice would you have for us? Double down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never apologize when you're not wrong. Like that's a good practical point of advice. Never apologize when you're not wrong because you're not just apologizing. If you apologize on a certain thing. Um, then it's like you're apologizing on behalf of Islam. So first of all, you have to make sure that what you're saying is correct Islamically. You have to make sure of that. And so you should definitely, like as you are doing this kind of work, make sure you're tied and you're connected to scholars uh, that will advise you, okay? And will be, we'll be able to correct you if you're wrong and that you'll listen to them. So that's what I have. Alhamdulillah, I have individuals, more than one, who are my teachers, and they also advise me. So if I, if I make a mistake, like I say something wrong, they'll point it out, and I'll go correct it, and I'll, or I'll go delete it, or I'll go change it. Um, so they're advising me, and I don't like question that. 
Um, if they tell me to do something, I don't question that. So you have to have that kind of basis because that's going to be your support. That's going to be your support when you get these haters. You're going to start questioning yourself. You're going to start questioning, oh, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Or, oh, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. So you need someone who understands what you're doing, like this m mindset that you just described to me about optics and, and propaganda or whatever. Uh, they, have to sh they have to share that, first of all. So you don't want some white knight imam. <laughs> right no, you want to make sure I don't find one like that uh you just look at what they're saying you get a Salafi and, imam we're good <laughs> yeah yeah get someone who is someone who traditional traditional yeah traditional and um often the ones from overseas are more like that like they have more of that mindset when they come here and they still preserve that as opposed to those who have been here for a long time and they've kind of some of them have kind of been uh, indoctrinated so may Allah protect us from that but the, uh, yeah, so you want to have that kind of uh, support. And then that will really help you because then it's just noise. Like, it's just noise. Like these haters, like, okay, whatever. Like if someone is going to criticize you and they're criticizing you in a way that has no basis, you just ignore it. Like that's, I get criticized all the time from people who their critiques are nonsense. Like they just make no sense. And Either they're nonsense or they're like Islamically problematic and they don't even realize it. Um, so, so then, yeah, then it's easy. You just ignore and, and you just keep doing the work that you're doing and not get discouraged and not think, oh, I have haters. So because all that matters in the end of the day is Allah, right? Is you have the sincere intention. You've tied your camel. You have tawakkul on Allah, but you've also tied your camel because you're attached to uh, scholars. Uh, who will tell you right and wrong if you ever like make a mistake and then you rely on Allah you're just you're just concerned about calling to Allah that's that's your rock that's what what keeps you consistent keeps you firm and all and then everything else becomes just noise and, and you can ignore it you just focus on your work what you're trying to accomplish just keep focused on that vision mm -hmm. and on that yeah. intention that Nia solid yeah yeah our, our, our page or is not just religion it's kind of like overall just self-development, uh, fitness, masculinity, uh, and there's spirituality as well. I, I have the six M's right here. We talk about, um, it's called the Muslim Males Monday Mail. So all that begins with M. We try to send out an email every Monday morning. And it's, we talk about muscle, uh, manliness, mindset, marriage, money, and mu'min. So six sections that we, that we talk about. Mashallah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So, we featured some of your articles too for yeah. like and stuff. It's like an all male email list. I mean, we yeah, that's the idea. Of, we're working on the guys because right. uh, I, I yeah, feel like that's great. If the guys get it together, if the guys are proper, I feel like like everything will smoothen out. Yeah, that's perfect. Don't let any girls in. Don't let any women. No, in. Yeah, I mean, like we, we, sure. we've had some. We've had some sisters just kind of like sneak on to the email list just to see what was up. Ban them. Hammer ban them. <laughs> <laughs> They'll make a new email account and then just like... No, they, can, they can make their own list. They can have like the Muslim female. They can do their own list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't like let them shame you into... Because so men. that's another important aspect of <clears throat> mental health. You want to talk about mental health? Okay, let's talk about mental health. Uh, each sex needs to have company with its own sex, right? Men with men, women with women. Like so much of socialization requires just a uniform group of the same sex, yeah. right? And if you have just one female 
within it or it one person, dynamic. it ruins the entire dynamic. No, everyone's gonna hit on her. Everyone's just gonna hit on her. Yeah, you're gonna act different. Like you're not as focused. It's just a disaster. So the, all of this mixing, and they say, "Oh, what's we're all responsible, mature adults. It's fine, guys and girls." Is yeah, okay, yeah. It's we're not all mature adults because there's so many examples of these Muslims that are constantly mixing that fall into zina. Like I've seen it a hundred times, unfortunately. Yeah. Like they want to say, "Oh, we're so mature. We're not gonna do anything. We can control ourselves." We can control our how we behave. We're not animals. And then, oh yeah, then later we find out that you're like pregnant because you like had a one night stand. So this is a this is a big problem with the mixing, like gender mixing, constantly. And you know, yeah, I mean, no, it's very no, hard in the university because unfortunately, a lot of these MSAs they just fall into that without re realizing the harm that it does and the opportunity that's lost you're losing a huge opportunity if you every kind of gathering every kind of msa event is mixed like there's women there in the room that you can see fine it might be on the other side of the room but they're still in the same space yeah. so this is like it's hard like when i was in msa like this was something that was an issue like we're constantly fighting about oh mixing and whether to have like uh how is the proper way to separate the genders and when you're like in college and hormones are raging and you're everyone's trying to get married or, <laughs> or thinking about it like in the back of their minds then it's hard to do but w we have a responsibility to uphold islamic ethics yeah well, definitely. Uh, brother daniel you know, uh like typically at least at least in my msa the uh, the like most of the brothers they don't want to uh like it, they don't want a free mix right but that's great mashallah <laughs> <laughs> guys, your guys are hardcore. That's great. It's typically it's just the uh, just the guys. That's good. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So then you guys need to stay strong and just not let those girls who want to mix mix it up. Just you know, be like, be like, yo, you want to mix with me? Just marry me. Lock. Yeah, yeah. If you want to mix, just marry. There's four slots available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was um, uh, in one of the I was listening to um. The Boys in the Cave podcast, or what, the Kids in the Cave podcast. Uh, I forgot the name. Um, Kids in the Cave. <laughs> oh, whatever. Um, their, their podcast with Nabil Aziz. Nabil Aziz, he made a very good point uh, in that men should have their own, or like, you have civilization, right? Um, we've lost having segregated, but not age-segregated areas does that make sense so like men right. of different ages we don't communicate with each other okay we don't have right. that like older men mentoring younger men and they're all in in like one halakha or one area right now it's more segregated or bro i can't talk i got this what do you say okay segregate uh, previous societies would segregate genders not ages in today's time we segregate ages but not genders that's what he's saying perfect yeah so like, and the thing is having older mentors that are like also men, it helps, like it basically helps you develop yourself because you, because uh, you, you know, you can get advice from others that have gone through what you went through and you can just develop faster. I think that's what Yeah, absolutely. At. I agree and, completely. And, and people like to bring, bring up the argument, oh, we're in a different society. You know, if you don't want to mix, go to Saudi Arabia. Well, that's a dumb <laughs> argument because, okay, like if you don't want to kill your baby, go to Saudi Arabia. That's a stupid argument. Like, yeah, obviously like a lot of, when men and women are made to basically pretty much procreate, like more or less. So if you put them together in the prime of their youth, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it's like, going to be a disaster. It is. A, yeah, it has so been a disaster. Married, 
So get married and only communicate when, with them when necessary. But yeah. Also, oh. what men need to do as well is that at least young men and old men, uh, young men and old men, they need to make group chats for themselves. Right. That uh, have old men within them and young men within them. They need to form their own tribe online if they if they don't have it in real life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what you're describing as <clears throat> generations being more connected um, is really, really critical. And <clears throat> a lot of the experiential knowledge that we're talking about earlier is transmitted from older to younger. And if we're segregated from the older generations, then we're missing out on that wisdom, we're missing out on that benefit. So I think this is a really profound point. I think one of the big problems is grade school, because when you're put in grade school, then everyone that you're around is of the same right. age, right? Mm -hmm. So then that's, you're kind of indoctrinated into that kind of mentality that I'm comfortable with people of my same age. And the right, you know, the normal thing to do is to be with people of my same age. And yeah, you're missing out. Like when I was an undergrad, most of the people that I would spend my social time with and quality time with were people older than me, you know, five, six, 10, up to 10 years older than me, graduate students and so forth and, and young professionals and, and slightly older. So that was very beneficial and enriching in my life to have that kind of access and connection and be able to benefit from their insights, their wisdom, their knowledge, their life experience. And while others restricted themselves to the same age and mixing like they were 10 steps behind because of that right does middle-aged daniel have any people who he's mentoring right now um yeah i have a few people that i'm trying to help out uh trying to get them to uh you know understand some of these ideas helping them with their writing helping them with I think about certain issues so that they can like write and, and be kind of like Muslim skeptics, quote unquote, as well. So I'm, I'm trying to mentor people for that. And I'm happy to like help anyone who's interested and willing to like be mentored. Like the amount of people who are going to listen to this podcast and then they're going to start messaging you. <laughs> Daniel, please mentor me. And then you're going to have to charge a fee for that. <laughs> no, no, alhamdulillah. Like if for things like just practical advice and I'm, I'm trying to develop that. Like that's um, why I was mentioning how Muslim skeptic, like I'm trying to expand it and grow it. I'm trying to develop programs for uh, mentoring people in this kind of way. And create so, as well, like Facebook groups for like old people meet, all guys Facebook group where old people meet with young people with like where young girls meet with older, older women as well. Yeah. Yeah. Inshallah. So I'm trying to develop those things in the process right now, actually. Do you have any advice for young Muslim men living in the West or most, you know what, let's start off with a bit more general. What practical advice do you have for Muslim men living in the West, regardless of age? Ooh, that's really open-ended. Uh, Practical advice, like I've already talked about education, knowledge, uh, families, but like something that's really can be practical is really focus energy on getting married. Really focus. Yes. Energy. What? <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Mashallah, yeah, because this is going to pay dividends. It's going to pay dividends later because if you are serious about it like in undergrad is the perfect time i would say that we should be starting this earlier than undergrad 18. but 
Yeah, even, yeah, like with my own kids, I want to get them to the point of maturity. Like I want to get them to the point of maturity where when they're 16 and 17, like I can seriously consider them getting married and helping them get married and supporting him in that, at that age, like 16 and 17. But it's like, if they're in a state of prolonged adolescence and they're just not responsible and they're just not like ready, then that's going to be a problem. So my whole objective as a father is to get them to the level of maturity where they can be a competent husband at the age of 16 and, and a provider and be, you know, protector. the protector, the man that, you know, the ayah is referring to, right? So who, how can you be amongst min al-rijal that is mentioned in that ayah? So that's a question that, or is a responsibility for me as a parent to get them to that state. Um, so, but as far as practically young men, like college age, young professional, like really, if it take your, like your education or your, like your career path, like takes one step back, that's fine. That's, that's the kind of trade-off that you should make in a heartbeat because your wife is going to really affect every other aspect of your life, um, until, you know, you die pretty much. And if you invest in a strong marriage and the right marriage with the right person, then that's going to pay dividends for the rest of your life because your kids are going to be born from that mother, from your wife. She's uh, going to be taking care of them. She's going to be the major influence in their lives. And then your children are going to be the ones who are going to be supporting you. Your children are going to be, be the ones that are going to occupy all your thoughts for the rest of your, you know, your life as, as an adult. Like You're not going to care about your job as much as you care about your children and how they're turning out and how they're behaving. So these, if you are focusing very practically on, okay, I'm going to find the right person. And when I find the right, and, and how do you find the right person? That's a big conversation. Actually, our upcoming course, our upcoming course at Alesna, uh, my wife is preparing it. I'm helping her uh, record it actually, is on Muslim courtship, like how to find the right and how to practically go about getting married. Um, so I put all these numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So, wait, brother Daniel. So you're saying it's not minder? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, minder. Uh, what's what's the other one? Musmatch. Yeah. But I know people that have gotten married off it, like traditional people. Mashallah, great. Like like the women wearing naqab. I don't. I don't know like the details of like how it works, but but I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with if there is a traditional way to get married through online means. There's no problem with it. As long as there are certain things that are a certain parts of the Sharia that are abided by, then there's no problem with it. Yeah. As well as, look, look, I'm 20, okay? I, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, most people who are 20 years old don't have enough money to get married, right? So Why? Why? Because we just, we're still in undergrad. Like, should we start working? No, like, why? How are you living? You're like in this dorm room right now. How are you living? Uh, Who's paying for that? Daddy. <laughs> For me, it's for me, it's my parents. Okay, so is there gonna be a problem if there was another human being in that room with you? I mean, I have a roommate right now, so like it's gonna be kind of awkward. But... No, but then <laughs> won't, wait, won't the won't the expenses go up? Um, not necessarily, not necessarily. Like, like I don't know how the how the dorm works, like how much you're paying for the dorm, like. But you know, there are you can get single dorms like on most campuses, especially bigger universities, you can get like a single suite 
and it's small, but you're marrying someone who understands like they're not going to be living in a mansion. Like it's yeah. someone who has the same mentality as you, right? The same mentality yeah. that marriage is important. Mm -hmm. And like, there's, there's the room. Like, how are you eating your food? So your parents are paying for that. Her parents, if she's also in college, maybe she's younger, are also going to be supporting her. So it's enough for you guys to be together. I know there's another uh, uncle that I was talking to a few weeks ago um, who was saying that, you know, he has this house and his son is 24 or 25 and he got married and then they didn't have like enough money. So they moved into the father's house uh, and they moved like they had their own section of the house, like a, like a, a room or an area of the house. And he was working like he's making money. He's saving money. He doesn't have to pay rent. He's there with his dad. His parents love it because they think that, okay, I'm here with my son and his wife and we're all happy family together. I'm not alone. Like my, I'm not like, it's not an empty nest with my kids. They've grown up and they've left me. Uh, I spent all these years raising them and giving my blood, sweat and tears for these kids. And then they're gone. No, he's here. I get to enjoy his company. I get to enjoy being with him and his wife. This is a win, 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 win situation. Um, but for some reason, because some Muslims have this kind of idealization of white uh, bourgeois living, like with the white culture, yeah, the son or the children, they move out, they go to college, and then they go and pursue their lives. Like this is the kind of model that they have. We don't need to adopt that model. We don't need to like have that kind of view of what's uh, right and uh, right for Muslims. Right, but what kind of that is going to allow there yeah like married yeah bum like like me and yeah, most dads are, <laughs> why are you a bum why are you like, huh? why am i a bum are, are you insulting me <laughs> no no listen listen you I mean, insulted uh, yourself you're like no, i'm a bum Fahd, always self-deprecating he's weird like that but anyways <laughs> i was gonna say this most dads they're not they'd prefer to give their daughter like their 20 year old daughter to like a 25 year old engineer than a 21 year old senior right that's their wrong mindset they have the no, wrong not mindset. i mean they're just I mean, like that. in their the in their mind that makes sense. <laughs> in their like in the in the daughter's what in the father of the wife's mind it makes sense that you're gonna want to pick the guy who who's like more well off and stable in his in his life rather than um, this like college senior student student yeah, yeah whatever yeah student. yeah sure that's fine like but if the a twenty year old dad, cool. twenty five year old but if you're twenty year old twenty years old then maybe the 18-year-old or the 17-year-old is the right match, mm -hmm. right? So you have to make it like there's the, like when I think about it, like for I don't have a daughter, but if I had a daughter, the way that I would think about it, I'm not looking for the Prophet Islam has told me basically what to look for in a suitable candidate for my daughter. I'm looking for his deen and his khulub. Deen and khuluk, those two aspects are number one priority. That doesn't mean I ignore everything else if he is actually a bum. But yeah, I, I have to understand, like I have to be mature enough and have enough tawakkul to realize, okay, Deen and khuluk are there. This guy, he's just at the beginning of his life. Like he's just trying to make it, but he's a responsible person and he's going to try his best as I've vetted him. And then, yeah, I want my daughter to be with someone and, and she's only 18 my vision for my daughter is I want her to be the best mother, to be the best wife, okay? This is what's going to contribute to the ummah. This is going to be contributing to her deen and her akhirah to be 
in this role. That's what I want for her. Okay. I don't want her to go to college and become a feminist and to go into the corporate world. That's not what I want for my daughter. I want my daughter to be married and uh, to a good husband who will, who will take care of her, who will lead her, who will protect her. And she will have children, inshallah, and she'll be a good mother to them. And I'm going to support that. I'm going to support her in any way that I can in that kind of vision. And so I want, so I, I'm looking for deen and khuluq. And then once that's there, I can, uh, we can work with other qualities. We can work with other qualities like, okay, he's still in college, right? He's not working yet. Maybe I can help him. Maybe I can help him uh, find that job that he needs. Maybe I can help him and do something that uh, he can start making money. Maybe I can help him in his career and things like that. That's the way that I have to be thinking as a father. That's how I have to be thinking as I'm trying to help the ummah. I'm trying to help the Muslim community get stronger and better. Okay, we help each other, not have this, oh, you don't have a job or you don't have this. Okay, yeah, be reasonable. Be reasonable, right? Uh, yeah, fine. There are people who are bums. Okay, you, you have to be as a, as, a competent, as a competent wali. You have to be able to vet people. And of course, sometimes things don't work out. That's human life. No problem. It's not the end of the world. Okay, yeah. It's, if, if, if it doesn't work out and my daughter is divorced, then she comes back with me and then that's fine. Like I'm, I'm still her wedding. I'm still protecting her. And then some, and she has brothers who are going to protect her and who are going to take care of her until, you know, the next person is found. The next, a better husband or a, a more suitable match is found. It's fine. Like it's not the end of the world. Why have we have adopted this kind of white bourgeois and white, I mean like American European, uh, not, to, yeah. not to be uh, racist. Not, not Persian white. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but this kind of, bourgeois american european attitude of what marriage about what life about what a career is like this is all nonsense like we shouldn't be internalizing this kind these kinds of standards for ourselves because it's going to we're going to follow the path like step by step foot mm -hmm. hand span by hand span we're, span we're going span. down the lizard hole right we're going down the lizard hole because we're we're doing everything we're trying some of us are doing what we're, what these uh what these uh, others are doing so we're going to get the same results we're going to well, get the yeah, like yeah, like even a hundred years ago, their families were together, right? Just just hundred, no. not even hundred, maybe sixty, seventy years ago, it was pretty normal to live like your grandparents to be in your house. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of the end, the sexual revolution was really the last nail in the coffin. So everything has been on a downward spiral since the '60s. But even prior to then, like liberalism has is a two hundred and fifty some odd odd year ideology. So it's been working slowly over time but then the sexual revolution was a catalyst that really messed a lot of things up mm -hmm. yeah i think yeah we've veered off topic quite a bit but it's pretty lit <laughs> it's good uh marriage talks are always good <laughs> but is there i think we got most of the questions right um do we have most of the questions well I, looks like fad is not satisfied with the marriage talk no the reason why i'm not okay the reason why i'm not satisfied is because like look um, why would any father, uh, well, why would any girl's father choose me rather than some guy who's made it better? You got to make a case for yourself, man. You yeah, got to make a case. That, yo, that's, why, bro. Come on, man. that's why med school is it's called fun. charisma. It's called charisma. It's called game, yeah. bro. You got to have game, bro. You got to have game, man. Game the dad. <laughs> yeah, you got you to prove yourself. It's not yeah. easy. It's not easy. I had a, I had an uphill battle because uh, yeah, you, you my wife. You shot twice, right? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, I shot twice. Yeah, exactly. But the big problem 
when, which one was that? It was the Mad Mom books, I think. You talked about. Oh, okay, yeah, that's like. Went, and then she was like, "No, we're too young." And then you, you're like, "You're like, no, I'm still doing this." <laughs> and then she was like, "Down." Yeah, the cards were stacked against me because the other issue was that she, her family's Egyptian, Mas. and then yeah, and then here yeah, must <laughs> then must, and then I'm here from. Iran, Iran, Persian, yeah. like, oh, yeah. who, is, who is this, like, Shias? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he's doing some kind of taqiyya here. He's trying to pretend, like, <laughs> he's <doing it. laughs> So, like, yeah, that was an uphill battle. And, uh, but but I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, I had to, like, work my magic, you know? <laughs> yeah, bro, I, I wish I had that kind of game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. But like, what at least what my dad told me is that um, he actually agrees with your with your idea of that like uh, the parents should help, that, that the parents should help support um, like the newlyweds. Yeah. Right? But he said that um, you just need to get into medical school first. That's it. I mean, I I, I can't complain. I can't complain. No, but like the first four years of college are probably like the most difficult. Yeah, uh, your dad's trying to motivate you. Like, your dad's trying to put that extra fire. Yeah, he's incentivizing you to uh, get into medical school. So. Because you're like, if you think about it, once you get married, you don't really have that much motivation anymore. <laughs> That's not true. You get motivation for another. From who? There you go, bro. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... Yeah, work with your dad, like, fine, but you have to hold him to it. And then it's possible. You can still pursue someone. You can still, like, be engaged. Yeah, bro. But you know, just without, your dad. Come on. Like, without necessarily getting married, like, right? You can get engaged to someone. And, like, even, like, an engagement is technically, like, you still can't, like, be alone with the person. So if, for example, you really, you already, like, right now. <laughs> Like right now, let's say you have someone in mind, like you, there's this amazing sister and you like, you have your sights set on her, for example, and she, you, from your consideration, she'd be a good match. You can still like figure out a way in cooperation with your dad and her parents. Okay. We're just, we want to see if this is a possible match because there, you might end up talking like a chaperone discussion, like with parents and find out it's not a match. Like it's not going to work out for various reasons. That's fine. Like you're gonna, you know, get back up, dust yourself off, and go to the next one. Exactly. But Abundance. there's no reason why you can't start out. You're 20, right? That's just two years. Like that whole marriage pursuit process takes a long time. That's right. So That's if true. like if you have someone in mind, there's no like you you, you should be uh, you know you should you should talk to your dad and see like you know you have to be diplomatic. Just think strategically. Like you're mashallah thinking strategically about a lot of things. Think strategically. How can I talk to my dad in a way to convince him to uh, address his concerns? His concern is I want my son to be a doctor. I want him to go to medical school. Okay, fine. That's that's a perfectly fine goal for a father to have, and you should understand that and understand where he's coming from. He has experience. He knows what life is like and how much having that kind of career is going to make life easier for you and so appreciate that and speak to that concern don't think that oh he just doesn't understand what's what i'm going through he doesn't understand so like i'm i'm upset and no it, demonstrate your maturity demonstrate your maturity with your dad and say like i understand like what what you want me to do and, and just work with me if like if there is someone who you really you know think would be a good match for whatever reason 
if not, then like, yeah, keep your eyes open. And maybe when you're in medical school, inshallah, then you can, then he, your dad won't have any, any excuse not to support you. Yeah. Sure. Inshallah. Yeah. Thank you, Uncle Daniel for, uh, <laughs> he's a bro, bro. He's an uncle. Come on, bro. What? He said he's a bro. Bro, Daniel. Brother Daniel. Yeah. Brother Mr. Daniel, who has more life experience than all of us combined. <laughs> Wait, yeah. uh, do we have any more no, I don't think I have more life experience than you guys. Combined. Combined? Uh, I don't know. We don't know how old you are, so. No, I'm not 40 yet, so. Yeah, that's true. Cool. Well, yo, what other uh, practical steps do you think most, um, Muslim men should take? What other? What do you mean? He mentioned. We, okay, we mentioned marriage. Okay, that's one. That's, that's good enough, bro. Is that enough? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... It's like half your Practical. deen. Yeah, half your deen. Yeah, I mean, this is something that... Okay, practical. What else is practical? Like I mentioned education. I mentioned like working on yourself. Ihsan, nafs, ikhlas. Like these are very important. So I don't want to like make it seem like they're not. Spiritual but, development. Yeah, but I'm trying to think of, like, in my experience, yeah, I, I would say here's a very practical, practical thing. Um, try to, when you work, try to live modestly. Try to live modestly in terms of spending and try to save your money um, to to be able to afford to buy a house and to be able to, you know, to settle and establish yourself. Because... If you, the less worried you are about financial concerns, monetary concerns, the, the easier your life will be. The more you are able to pursue your interests, to pursue things that make you happy, to focus on your family. This is something that's very important and they don't teach you this in school. You Definitely. go to college, they're not going to teach you like how to spend money and how to live uh, in that kind of financial aspect. And that's why a lot of people struggle. Like the vast majority of people are in debt and a lot of debt. And part of it is because of loans, right? And part of it is because people just spend so much money. They buy things that they don't necessarily need. Like I have to get the newest iPhone all the time. I have to get the newest like gadget. I have to, have the, I have to drive the newest car. I have to like live in the best part of like the hippest part of town and pay a higher rent. So like, Wherever you can be more financially modest and save that money, that's going to help you a great deal later in life. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it might not be on your radar now because your parents are paying for things, but, you know. Yeah. That's definitely very important. Um, we know that many Muslims also probably take loans for college as well. Yeah, yeah. So. That's a different discussion. Yeah, that's a whole different. How about, how about you relax? <laughs> different discussions. So. Uh, okay. Actually, you know, our first question actually seems pretty interesting. You want to discuss that as well? I mean, we, we already he already explained that. Kind of, uh, kind of. But I wanna... what you did, you know, he got he got very passionate too for once. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I'm passionate this whole time. No, you were. Yeah, you were. You were. You're passionate. You were. You were definitely. So. Uh, no, that was good. Pretty solid. Yeah, I think one good thing you do is you're very good at staying calm in your debates as well. That's like, oh, yeah. Like, we'll talk about that maybe next time. 
Yeah, I mean, with the Tohady debate, like, we can talk about that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's up on YouTube, so it's public, so we can... Yeah, it's yeah. public, but... Yeah, that yeah. whole thing was very awkward and very weird. Um, so because, <laughs> yeah. Because originally, what originally was supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be a debate. Originally, it was going to be a panel event at this kind of... There was this group called Pangburn Philosophy, where they they set up these kinds of panel discussions on issues of the day like politics religion and so forth so they had a panel on islam and they had multiple panelists i was just one of five other panelists and uh tohidi was one of the panelists uh armin navabi the uh the mortad uh who left islam he was on the panel a couple of atheists uh shadi hamid i don't know if you know him but he's with brookings oh isn't he uh, the, so, he was on mad mom looks i think at one point uh, maybe yeah so then the this is gonna be a panel discussion so right. then i get to the so i fly to new york and then they tell me oh, okay the the actual the conference where this panel was gonna happen has been canceled so there's no longer gonna be this uh panel or there's not no longer gonna be this conference but we're still gonna have this panel we're still gonna have a panel discussion so like, okay fine then i go to the venue the day of and then say oh actually we're not gonna have a panel because these other panelists didn't show up so it's just you and Tawhidi and Armin, this uh, the Mortad. So let's just let's just have a discussion. Let's just have a discussion. So I'm like, okay, let's have a discussion on modernity, right? Let's have a discussion. That was the topic of the panel. It was supposed to be on Islam and modernity. And that's what I prepared for. And they and they're saying, Yeah, yeah, sure. But of course, Tawhidi, like he doesn't probably can't even pronounce the word modernity, modernity, modernism. And uh, he uh he wanted to just have this kind of Shia Sunni debate, which is ironic because nothing that he was saying was had anything to do with Shiaism either. He was it was just like sheer kufr, and it was awkward for me. It was awkward for me because the, the main audience for this, uh, the way that they were going to distribute it, was through Armin this the atheist channel. channel, the Mortad channel, right? So his main audience are non-Muslims. His main audience are atheists, right? So then I'm thinking about, I have to answer questions that make sense to the atheist, right? And so this, this fool is bringing up issues that are like theological debates. So like when he says something like, oh, you know, uh, Khalid ibn Walid, he beheaded this person and he did this and that. Yeah. I, or like he, or the satanic verses, for example. He yeah, brought up exactly. the satanic verses. I can't just say, oh, that's inauthentic. Like that's not like... If I was, if it were a Muslim audience, that would make sense because I can say that on authority, like, like, yeah, these are something where the scholars, the ulama, the majority thought that these, this is inauthentic. These are inauthentic narrations. Yeah, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was, yeah, was the exception. You can say that and appeal to authority because a Muslim audience will understand that. But the atheist audience will think, oh, this guy is just, uh, you know, brushing things under the rug. Anything yeah. that makes Islam look bad, he's just brushing it under the rug. Tawhidi is the honest one. Tawhidi is the one who's really, uh, you know, speaking the real truth about Islam. This guy, he's just trying to sweep things under the rug. So then that, that's, that's what made it awkward because I have to like address it so that the atheist can not think that, oh, Islam, like he's just backpedaling or he's just like apologizing for Islam. So, but I, I tried my best. Uh, you know, that was good. Allah forgive me for any mistakes. You know, you should make sure that people who you debate with, they, you should have a prerequisite, like they should take a logic class before. 
Yeah, you can't have prerequisites. I, I wasn't planning to debate him, right? I wasn't planning, okay, I'm going to debate Tawhidi. Like it was supposed to be a conversation on Islam and modernity, but they, they made it into a debate. So, I mean, that's, that's like the way it turned out. I think that spontaneous, but uh, debates like that, I don't know if I'm going to be in other debates, but I've been trying to debate like feminists, but <laughs> they all chicken out of it. So, uh, but yeah, it's, I think that if you're a good debater, you don't need to have prerequisites for a debate. Like there just needs to be a fair playing field. Like, okay, there's like set rules, like you get time to talk and you get time to talk. And then a skilled debater who is able to use rhetoric and logic and, and be able to speak to people. Like this is what balagha means, right? Being like eloquent in your speech. You should be able to speak to people at their level, right? Speak to them and be able to convince them regardless of, oh, we have set prerequisites and this and that. Like that's not really necessary. If you're good, if you're, if you're a good debater, then the truth, like you can make the truth clear to people where they'll understand that, okay, you're, you're speaking the truth, your side is correct, and this is, this is false. Yeah, what's annoying about Ar Armin's thing, he calls it Islam Unboxed. I'm like, yo, it's nowhere near Islam Unboxed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a uh... dumb chat. So yeah, but yeah, that debate was just, I mean, like for a spontaneous thing, it was like he didn't come up with anything coherent. If you couldn't even tell if uh, the guy Imam Tawhidi is Muslim, first of all. Like, yeah. Like, bro, like, do you even love the prophet? The atheist like, was like, yeah, the atheist was like, why are you a Muslim? Yeah, it was like, so weird. Was... And then he was like, uh, Islam cannot be reformed. Okay. But then he, <laughs> then he contradicted it. And then he was like, which we would agree with. But then he will say something totally like retarded, like the Quran has been distorted or something. Yeah, he 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 was constantly contradicting himself, like explicitly, because he started his introduction by saying, "I am a reformist." Yeah, like he calls himself a reformist, and then two minutes later, he says, "Islamic reform is a sham." Yeah. <laughs> right. So I was like, "Do you not even know what you're saying?" But I don't know how you could take someone like that seriously. Like on Twitter, he, he has like all these. All a lot of people, people, a lot of people are following him. He's like featured in a lot of news programs too. Like yeah, the Fox News in the in the UK and Australia, he's featured on that stuff. Can't so. believe you. Yeah. Yo, I, so, I found it. I found it. Islamophobe. We can trust ex-Muslims when they speak about Islam because they have experienced Islam and left it. Me. So I guess your ex-wife was right about you. Islamophobe. <laughs> And there's like a hashtag, there's a percent sign, there's an at symbol, and then there's a money symbol. I think that means it's a curse word. Oh. It says, hashtag, please reflect. <laughs> yeah, Asadullah wrote this. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, a good analogy. Yeah, pretty dope. Uh, covered yeah, quite a few things. The, the, main, uh, the main issue, like, yeah, you had was progressivism, and then we got into marriage, which was good actually. Got became did, more personal. Why did progressivism like begin in Muslims? Like, why why does the cog why do Muslims allow that type of cognitive dissonance to exist in their minds? Like, why why do they just invite it? This is what um, this is what colonization was about because the colonizers came and said that, look, we're able to dominate you because of scientific progress. 
we're able to take over and our military is stronger because we have science and we have technology. And if you want to be like us, then you need to adopt our values. You need to adopt our way of thinking. You need to be progressive and be willing to change, to change your laws, to change your ethics, and to constantly be willing to evolve and progress. And then you can achieve what we achieved. Mm-hmm. And so this, is a, this can be uh, very seductive. This is a seductive message. That's an illogical uh, argument that's based on heuristic. It's, it's an illogical argument. And the only reason why it works is because of the heuristics involved with it. Heuristics and propaganda, straight up. Yeah, of course, it's propaganda because what you end up doing is that you, if you uh, want to be, if you accept this kind of progressive mentality, you have to destroy your tradition. You have to destroy your religion. You have to destroy your culture. And this is how uh, the colonizers were able to destroy so many uh, civilizations and to wipe out so many cultures. This is how they did it. They homogenized the world. This is the globalist influence of colonialism. Uh, and, and it's because of this progressive ideal. Yeah, you see so, it in... No, yeah, but then why, so, do, why do Muslims jump on the train and they'll be like, us too, we are, we're going to be progressive as well? Well, like I said, it's this idea that it's the heuristic that do you want to be advanced like the West has advanced technologically? Yeah, but I would say that modern day Muslims, I mean, the ones who are born and raised in the West, they don't necessarily think like that, right? They just, they just kind of grew up with the culture. Bro, they just want to fit in. But it's built into the culture. It's built into the culture. Yeah. When I was like, when I was like growing up in the West, I didn't have thoughts about colonization um, while growing up. Yeah, yeah, of course not. Like the colonizer doesn't want you to think of him as the colonizer. The colonizer wants you to think of him as the liberator. The colonizer wants you to think of his culture as being the default. Like this is the way that things should be. Mm. Like the secular society, the secular technological state and anything that diverges from that is like a aberration, like a religious kind of bias or religious distortion. Definitely. So Muslims have a, like Muslims just take this assumption that, oh yeah, the secular uh, European model, that's the kind of model that we aspire to. That's why <clears throat> all these Muslim countries have a constitution that's modeled after Western constitutions, the American yeah, okay. constitution. That's but why it's very historical though. I'm talking about like today, like generations. It's happening today. It's happening in Muslim countries today. Yeah, like the Egyptian after the Egyptian revolution, like the constitution yeah. that they created. What was that uh, based off of? What are they doing in Tun- Tunisia? Mm-hmm. Right? It's based off of liberal democracy. Like that's the ideal that they're pursuing, a secular liberal democracy. And then Muslims too, like Muslims are, of course, like, what do you think like the women's march, like the Muslims who are participating in the women's march or may not participate in it, but see it as something good or something beneficial. They think that, look, we're, we're pursuing liberty. We're pursuing rights. We want to pursue human rights and the freedom of all, like this kind of language, where is it coming from? This is secular liberalism. Muslims today, today are adopting that kind of mindset. You're making, question, you're making it sound much more logical, like that, that these protesters who are in favor for uh, progressivism actually think through all of these things, lo- like think through all of these things logically and they have their whole arguments made when 
I would say that's not necessarily the case. They're just being peer pressured into it. They see that. Not peer pressured, no. I would say they just want to fit in. Isn't that peer Same thing, same thing. Same thing. Oh, it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, I guess But so. it's like, it's the way that people get ideas and their beliefs, a big part of it is just Heuristic. influence, cultural influence. Exactly, heuristic. That's, yeah, exactly. Nail on the yeah, head. So, so th- yeah, no doubt. Like that, but that's why I'm saying like those kinds of beliefs, those liberal secular beliefs, are part of the culture, and so they're not viewed as coming from the colonizer. They're just seen as the default. Just, this is what it means to be a civilized person, a rational person, right. a moral person. Would you say you, you, and your position and and the character that you've kind of created for yourself, is um, like the main purpose of it is to try to erode the idea of progressivism away. Yeah, I'm constantly arguing against it. When I say something like modernity, modernity is a disease and Islam is, a, is the solution. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. That's the whole mantra. Uh, that's the whole motif that you're just, right. you're like hitting over and over and over again. Right. Yeah, you have to have like, you want to talk about optics and how to like, uh, you know, what's effective propaganda, um, what's effective way to communicate a message. Like you have to have a very simple core message and you keep hitting on it. You keep hitting on it. You keep hitting on it in different aspects. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Muslims have a lot to learn from uh, this recent history of Donald Trump, like this phenomenon of Donald Trump, like how was he able to, like something that is, was so taboo and so like white supremacy, something that's so hated like this, he's given lifeblood to this entire group of white supremacists and that this entire mentality. And he's won the election. He's like, it's so a, persuasive. a cultural revolution, right? So how does this happen? Like if it can happen with something as despised as white supremacy, then Islam is despised as well. And Islam is seen as alien to the Western culture, American culture. So we should try to understand like, and learn instead of being this kind of arrogant uh, mentality of, oh, these stupid racists, you know, Donald Trump supporters, like they're just idiots. Like they're just, this is white flight, blah, blah, blah. No, try to understand like why Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump, how he was able to manipulate, how he was able to use media and how his followers were able to use media to create this movement. Um, there's a lot that can be learned from that. Yeah, definitely. And a lot is, um, a lot of his younger supporters, they used memes in order to um, spread their message and spread their influence, right? Just through jokes and through humor, through culture. But that's right. everyone. Yeah, I, you know, there's this one uh, Twitter account. It's called like uh, the Caliphate's Meme Archive. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. You've seen it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They've, they've had memes of you as well with you with like red laser eyes coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, you know, it's it's stuff like that, like jokes and creating a culture of like popular and what? Yeah, like a tribe, like a whole. Islam, yeah, it's very smart. Dark web and like you know, like the Muslim intellectual cult, dark web. <laughs> yeah, you, like the, cult mentality is so powerful, and we should take advantage of this fact rather than just like saying all oh, cults are bad. No, we should like use it. Use this idea yeah i mean if you say there's like a negative connotation with the word cult but the idea that you're mentioning like you're thinking about how uh people form groups 
Yes. And this yes. is this is what al wala wal bara is all about. Like this is what loyalty and um, you know what's how do you translate al bara? Uh, oh, just like <laughs> yeah, dissimulation or yeah, just like so that's um, that's something that Muslims there's different ways to inculcate that. Like there's different ways to inculcate that sense of belonging. Like we're part of the same ummah. We're part of the same community. We're all, we have a shared goal. We have a shared purpose. And right. we're going to work towards that and be willing to help each other and lift each other up and sacrifice for each other. Like this is something that you inculcate. But if you're part of a worldview or part of a paradigm that says that, oh, you know, there's no such thing as religious exclusivity and all religions are equally valid and there's everyone no is like, yeah, you can, you can't have there's well no such thing as that. truth. Yeah. So you can't, then that's, that's constantly dissolving the right. possibility of a tribe or, or a group or a consistent community. Yeah. You always have to have a them in order for an us to exist. And that's what um, Jack Donovan in his book, Becoming a Barbarian, that's what, that's what it's all about, how to create groups. That's good. That's, I haven't read it, but. He's a, he's a very masculine, homosexual individual. So <laughs> He's good at being a man, but he's not a good man. <laughs> yeah. Put it that way. Okay. From my Islamic standards. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we went for what almost three hours, maybe. Is it three hours? Wow, so long. That was good though. Uh, probably a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Brother Daniels, do you have anything else to say? Uh, no, Barakallahu Fikuma, uh, for having me. Um, appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you all, and hopefully, I didn't say anything incorrect. And please forgive me if I said something incorrect. Uh, but alhamdulillah, it was uh, very nice talking to you guys and hearing your thoughts because I'm very excited for your generation, especially when, you know, you guys have these bright ideas. And if there's anything that I can do to help you, just let me know. That's very kind of you to say, honestly. Yeah. Honestly, uh, say. Where can, where can people reach you if they want to find you? Uh, you can um, look for me on muslimskeptic.com. Um, I try to post on there daily. Uh, you can message me through that. You can message me through Facebook. Uh, my Facebook page, you can direct message me on Twitter, like so many different ways you can contact me. And then my new initiative is, is alasna.org. Okay. I think I'm going to sign up for a class, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah, so it's a subscription. So you, you just sign up and then you have access to all the courses. So we're kind of doing a different model. Instead of you just sign up for one course and take one course for like $90, you just sign up for $11 a month and then there's new courses that come out every month um, that you can take. So a lot of content. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I think, yeah, I definitely consider probably will sign up at some point eventually. Uh, yeah. There's going to be more like it's just started, but there's going to be like more samples so people can see what it's about and entice you to like sign up. Because, <laughs> uh, it's really good stuff. Inshallah. Inshallah. All right. Uh, I'm excited. I think, that's it. Fahad, you want to wrap it up? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wal-Asr inna l-insana da fi khusr illa ladhina amanu wa amilu s-salihati wa tawasu bil-haqqi wa tawasu bil-sabr. Sadaq Allah al-Azim.